before today's episode begins, I have a letter that I would like to read from my co-host Khaled Binyak. Dimitri, at this moment I remember many things. When I met you in Central Park and told you I wanted us to do a podcast with Jaha in the name, all the tensions involved in the preparations. One day they came by and asked who should be notified in case of cancellation, and the real possibility of it struck us all. Later we knew it was true, that the Paris social revolution, one wins or dies, if it is a real one. Many comrades were ratioed along the way to victory. Today, everything has a less dramatic tone because we are more mature, but the event repeats itself. Other battlefields of the subliminal jihad now summon my modest efforts of assistance. I can do that which is denied you due to your responsibility as producer of subliminal jihad and your lack of a master's degree. Therefore, the time has come for me to enter a period of academic occultation. I must say farewell to you for several episodes at least, to the noited comrades, to all the SJ heads who are now mine. You should know that I do so with a mixture of joy and sorrow. I leave here the purest of my hopes as a builder and the dearest of those I hold dear. And I leave an audience who receive me as a son. That wounds a part of my spirit. I carry to new battlefronts the faith that you taught me, the critical paranoid spirit of my people, the feeling of fulfilling the most sacred of duties, to fight against imperialism, dracularity, and shaitanic susness, wherever it may be. This is a source of strength, and more than heals the deepest of wounds. I state that I free Subhumal Jihad from all responsibility, except that which stems from its example. If my final hour finds me under other skies, my last thought will be of the grotto, and especially of you. I have always been identified with the spiritual policy of our Jihad, and I continue to be. Wherever I am, I will feel the responsibility of being SJ pilled and I shall behave as such. I am not sorry that I leave nothing material to my fiance and my dog. I am happy it is that way. I ask nothing for them, as the Patreon will provide them with enough to live on and receive an education. I would have many things to say to you and to our people, but I feel they are unnecessary. Words cannot express what I would like them to, and there is no point in scribbling pages, but... Um, call it attached a uh, 150 page heavily footnoted appendix outlining a number of future episodes uh, on the history of Islamic jurisprudence, uh, realians, giants, and the trans-historical susness of eggs, which uh, I will not read, but... Um, <clears throat> Inshallah, I will return soon. But until that day arrives, Dimitri, I know you will stay vigilant and never forget our most sacred maxims, that Chomsky is sus, 9-11 was mass ritual, and there ain't nothing new under the sun. Watch out for Jan. Khalid. This program deals with devil worship and satanic beliefs. It contains explicit scenes and descriptions of violent crimes and rituals. Americans are asking, who attacked our country? You have declared a subliminal jihad against the United States. Can you tell us why? Everything pertaining to what's happening has never come to the surface. The world will never know the true facts of what occurred. And I fell in a different world. And if this is thinking, you know... 
I should be getting this position, not Adam, and this guy is created from dirt. And how does the army feel about you being head of the Temple of Set? And the conspiracy theorists can say what they will. But... I want you to give me power over Adam, and I want you to give me soldiers and minions and all of these things. The people have to have knowledge to And I want you to be able to give me the ability to whisper into the hearts of mankind. And uh, who was the grotto leader? I don't remember his name. You don't remember the name of the person who involved you in murder? Welcome back to Subliminal Jihad, episode 102. I'm your co-host, Dimitri. And today, I am joined by the first, second time recurring guest on Subliminal Jihad, the man, the poster, the legend, Jimmy Fallon Gong. Jimmy, are you there? I sure am. How's it going? (laughs) It's great. Uh, It's great to be the first repeat guest. Yes, yes. Well, I'm very excited. Um for you to uh, slip into, I guess, the uh, proverbial college chair today because uh, we're going to be talking about a subject that is very near and dear to my heart and is one of those, like, been on the docket since episode one kind of episodes. But we're going to do a kind of a historical investigation through the prism of music today. I guess what we're going to be really focusing on is... Soviet underground rock music in the 1980s, or uh, as it was later labeled, Red Wave. And I don't know about you, Jimmy, but I first stumbled upon this like years ago. Um, I actually, I have like a cute story, um, just like the subject, uh, the person, the American that we're going to be covering today. I visited Russia in like 2012 and I was in Irkutsk and was riding in a Russian guy's taxi. It wasn't really a taxi. They just hung, kind of hang out like Uber unofficially at train stations and you kind of negotiate something. And we were driving around and this song came on the radio and I was immediately vibing with it. And weirdly, I don't know, because this is back in 2012, like the thing it reminded me the most was uh, like Ariel Pink. Mm. But I could tell it was like from the 80s or the 90s or something like that. And I started vibing with it and I was like, oh, this is cool. And I whipped out my phone. I started like recording it like on the little, you know, speaker down by my feet. And I asked the driver, like, who's this? Who's this? And he was like, uh, Victor Choi. And I'm like, oh, cool, cool. So I wrote down on my phone, Victor Choi, like (laughs) C-H-O-Y. And I was like, oh, cool. And so I came back to America and I sort of didn't think about it for a while. But then every now and then I'd find it like in my voice memo app. It was like Victor Choi's song. And I would just play this like clip of the song. And it was like, oh, this is so cool. But like, I wonder what it is. I kind of assumed it was like 90s Russian rock, right? Like the the taxi driver was probably like in his 40s, I would say. And it was like, oh, this is probably popular after the collapse of the Soviet Union. Because, you know, it sounds so professionally made. It has this kind of dope production and this vibe. It sounds so modern. There's no way, Jimmy, that it could have been recorded under evil, artistically stifling Soviet communism, right? (laughs) 
Well, it turned out I was incredibly wrong because uh, a couple, like maybe around like 2014, I was just like traipsing. I, I think I even tried to Google it a number of times. And for some reason, Victor Choi never popped up anything. I'm like, oh, okay, whatever. I guess it's kind of an obscure artist. And then uh, it, finally the actual song uh, stumbled across my radar on YouTube one day. And I figured out it was actually Victor Tsoi, uh, T-S-O-I, who was the lead singer of a band named Kino. And the song I was listening to was Grupa Krovi, which like later I found out like LOL is like basically like the smells like teen spirit of like 80s Russia. <laughs> it's like if you play it for any Russian, they'll be like, oh, yeah, it's the most popular song ever. You know, like every literally everybody knows it. But I realized, you know, this is a band from the 80s. This is a Soviet rock band. And even just like those phrases together, I think a lot of uh, Westerners listening right now aren't even fully aware. Like maybe more people are aware because of like Soviet like Doomer like mixes on YouTube or something, yeah. uh, which I don't know. Maybe that's where you stumbled across like some of this music first. Um, but they don't know that, that there was rock music in the Soviet Union in uh, the 1980s and not only was the rock music there was really good rock music in the soviet union in the 1980s but anyways where did you first discover it jimmy i think i first heard about the existence of this music probably from like basically some combination of like adam curtis and or the radio war nerd podcast mm, okay. <laughs> and just then maybe a couple of years ago, I sort of started very slowly learning Russian, <clears throat> still not very far along that path. And I also, you know, more recently started doing my show and I really needed music that I could listen to <clears throat> and enjoy that I couldn't understand. Right. Cause like when you're writing, like it's distracting for me, English lyrics are often distracting. Yeah. And you know, there were there was especially that series of quasi meme mixtapes where it's like doomer music and it'll be like maybe like almost like a DJ screw slow and reverb of like pop songs. But then on YouTube, I accidentally found the Russian Doomer series mm -hmm. and I started listening to them. And then like I realized this is the most incredible music. And then I eventually found out that almost all of the music in the Russian Doomer mixtapes were like basically like classic Russian Soviet rock bands. Yeah. <laughs> and so that was my first exposure for sure. It's a, uh, it's pretty, it, it's pretty fascinating. Like it, <clears throat> I don't know, especially being, uh, I don't know, like with people that consider themselves like music connoisseurs or like real music heads in like America, you know, they could go all day about like, this is like ugh, the second lineup, but the germs are like, blah, 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 the Melvins are like, blah, 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 like everything. You know what I mean? Like, it's always like there's there was this like vibrant, like underground of um like punk metal kind of, uh, you know, music, post punk, like things that people really hold in high esteem, like real heads know, blah, 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 and all that jazz. But like people that are deeply invested in kind of like, I don't know, collecting vinyls or knowing it all about kind of modern music and these different currents, like again and again in my life since discovering it, like none of them know about it. Like nobody, especially, I mean, if you talk to like Gen Xers, 
And I think we'll kind of get into that. And I don't think it's like totally like accidental that none of them have ever heard of it. But uh, it, it's like this total, I think it, you know, it also reflects, I think, a real Western chauvinism around rock music and just yeah. this like this assumption that like because this this is really like an ontological break for me discovering like Soviet rock music <laughs> because like as, as much as I kind of admired maybe people like Lenin before that or things like that I, I still kind of I think imbibed for many years the kind of left liberal cliches about Soviet life that oh mm -hmm. well you know you couldn't art, artists couldn't express themselves socialist realism was so stifling and boring like the, the implication of all that kind of being at least we had artistic freedom over here and look what it produced look at this great and it's hard to and on some level it's hard to argue with that even though like a huge disproportionate amount of that is like african-american art <laughs> that was like made mainstream um mm -hmm. But, you know, putting that aside, it, it, it's like, yeah, sure. Like we, we've, there a lot of amazing uh, genres of music have uh, come out of America. I mean, whether you're talking about like everything from jazz to the blues to our style of folk and rock and roll and hip hop, like undeniably America is like a heavy hitter when it comes to that. But I think particularly with like rock music and, and modern type like pop music that like pushed boundaries and was like interesting and stuff like that, like when you really lay it out side by side and personally, I even include the official Soviet bands, even though today we're talking about kind of the unofficial bands, um, that it's really more of an even match than like, and especially if you like bring that out to the entire Eastern Bloc, if you look at countries like Poland and Hungary and like, my God, Yugoslavia, that's a story for another day, but they all had like really amazing bands and, uh, and kind of styles of music and like a lot of it was really well produced. I mean, there was like big budget stuff and then there was like kind of underground stuff. It just, there was a lot more. Uh, so I think today, I think we are challenging the like undisputed uh, hegemony of like American rock. Uh, I think could you, we could say that, right? Yeah, no, I mean, I would say that Kino alone has probably like songs as good as take your pick for like the Beatles, Elvis, Prince, you know, or Nirvana, whatever. Any, yeah. Anything you can pick. Depeche yeah. Mode. More like any of, of those 80s, other big bands. Yeah. It's also like people forget that. I mean, this is also like the eighties when there was a lot of cheesy shit being made in the West in the eighties. And like, yeah. sure there was in the Soviet union too, but this stuff is like very fresh and avant-garde. It's like, it makes like the talking heads look corny basically in terms of like kind of how far out it is. Like it makes them look kind of like that type of CBGB kind of new wavy stuff look a little bit like, like boring uh, as, as Boris Grabenshikov uh, told David Letterman in 1989. Um, <laughs> said, but we'll, we'll get to that later. But anyways, I mean, so I think we are going to honor this music today, but also there's like a more personal narrative that we're going to use as our vehicle to ride through this story. That's a little bit more complicated that complicates this entire narrative, right? Oh yeah. I would say that this narrative gets extremely complicated. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, we, we are definitely entering like the, uh, maybe not a wilderness of mirrors, but like the KGB sponsored music hall of mirrors, or maybe the CIA sponsored music hall of mirrors, uh, as it might turn out. But okay. Just that I think we just have to get into it. So 
the really interesting angle on this story that we're going to dive into is uh, the that there was a central figure in the 80s Leningrad rock and roll underground that ended up playing like a fairly significant role in both uh, kind of popularizing this music uh, to some extent within the Soviet Union, but also kind of more somewhat more significantly like bringing the music, literally smuggling this music to the West to get it basically pressed into like a compilation album and also to establish connections between uh, sort of the American art intelligentsia and the music industry and these like largely unknown kind of obscure, but but in many cases, genius uh, Russian rock musicians. And that is, it is literally a 1980s Beverly Hills girl named Joanna Stingray, born Joanna Fields. But this is a girl who went on a student, went, she tagged along with her student, uh, with her sister's student field trip to the Soviet Union in 1984 and just so happened to make contact with one of the most seminal Soviet rock musicians, uh, Boris Grabenshikov, and then immediately befriended like every single person that would end up being a huge figure basically in the Soviet rock and roll scene, which at the time was still basically kind of underground, not super well known, et cetera. And uh, this, this Beverly Hills girl would kind of decide to make it her life's mission. I think she was in her early twenties at this time to make it her life mission to go back over the, uh, the iron curtain and proselytize this Soviet underground rock to the West in a kind of, um, I guess, an attempt to foster like East-West understanding. Because remember, she went there before Gorbachev when the kind of Cold War tensions with Reagan uh, and the Soviets were like at their peak. And she had this kind of, uh, I guess you could say, idealistic dream of like bridging the gap between like you know, uh, Soviet culture and American culture through the most universal idiom of all rock music, which, you know, as a, as a consummate, like West LA Gen Xer, she could not help, but be a, uh, extremely fanatical devotee of almost on a spiritual level. And then, you know, basically, uh, her, her experiences in Russia, which we're going to kind of chronicle, uh, via her memoir, Red Wave, which just came out like two years ago extended into the 90s and eventually she came back to Southern California where she's lived kind of a quiet existence. I think it's like a realtor for like yeah. the last like 20 years or something. Just kind of like she also runs the like she's director of the alumni of her high school or something like Beverly Hills High School. Yeah. Wow. And so she, yeah, she did go to Beverly Hills High School. But um, so it adds this like very interesting kind of twist on the whole thing this american angle into it and i mean i guess we can't really bury the lead um i think we're 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 going to be doing a thorough sus check on this entire narrative as we walk through it because there's some things that th this is this is really like a kind of like bizarre like forrest gump kind of journey that she <laughs> went on to like the soviet union it's so random like it, I couldn't think of anything more random than like a rich girl from Beverly Hills who's kind of like a punk, like a glammy, like 
bratty punk rocker who kind of had designs on wanting to kind of get into the music industry. Like a, this is like a very, I got huge Brett Easton Ellis vibes uh, in oh, all yeah. the parts of her book talking about growing up in Beverly Hills and pretty much the same time that he did and just kind of the casual like bouginess people, of everything. The people she <laughs> casually mentions are insane. Yes, like the name drops in this book are pretty wild. I mean, we get, uh, my God, Bowie, Warhol, um, a lot of politicians on top of that. Uh, George Schultz, you know, like just uh, a lot of interesting figures. So, all right, I guess, you know, maybe I think we'll start with her early life here and uh, kind of her background, her family background, because yeah. I don't think well, it's totally irrelevant. Um <laughs> Well, real quick, uh, do you yes. want to explain the difference between the prof like the professional rock and the underground rock in Soviet Russia at the time? Yes, absolutely. So yes, um, so at the time that at the time that Joanna Stingray first went to the Soviet Union in 1984, uh, it was like I said, it was before Glasnost and Perestroika and the kind of mm -hmm. loosening of like official government censorship. So what you had in the Soviet Union is a kind of interesting system that like in some ways uh, parallels kind of how the music industry in, you know, the West works, but was at the same time very particular, I think, to um, to the USSR. So what you had were you had one record label in the Soviet Union, Melodia. And that was like the monopoly that basically produced all official music. Now, official meant that you basically had a job. As your official job was you were a musician. And so that meant that you would sign basically a kind of a contract with Melodia, which had certain terms attached to it and obviously like certain perks. So like you could actually have, if you wanted to be an official musician in the USSR, uh, the pros of that were that you would generally make like a good salary. Um, you'd get like a pretty nice apartment, maybe get a car. You would go on tour, you get paid for that. And uh, generally speaking, have like a pretty comfortable life, like probably more comfortable life than most working <laughs> like American musicians, I would say. Um, and, and, you know, base, and a lot of these people also benefited from the free education where people that showed musical talents could go to like higher education and so you often had people uh even playing in like unofficial bands that were like classical pianists or you know could play like flamenco guitar like just all kinds of crazy shit because they were like properly professionally trained for free we might add and so that was a good deal for a lot of people right and, and, and the uh like correct me if i'm wrong the majority were like probably classical musicians right and then like there was like a range of like pop and then there were also rock bands, right? There were rock bands, exactly. And there were a lot of like ensembles, like literally that's what they, they were kind of called or like variety bands. And uh, and also there was a lot, I mean, like this book constantly is nagging official music and the musicians in it are constantly nagging official music for being boring and stupid and lame. But really like I've become a huge fan of like official Soviet music, particularly from like the 1970s and the early eighties. And one of the coolest things about it was the kind of um like one really popular genre was kind of like, I would describe it as almost like pet sounds esque sort of psychedelic folk pop. 
um, yeah. like pop rock, like bands like Pesniari and uh, Gaia, who's a really great like Azerbaijani band. But a lot of what you got was actually a lot of interesting diversity where you had these band ensembles from like Uzbekistan, Azerbaijan, you know, Belarus that would kind of incorporate classical folk uh like compositions and songs and melodies and, and instruments and things like that within this like very maxed out, like really well produced, like orchestral kind of like pop symphony sort of sound uh, that also was very, I mean, kind of very like psychedelic, like surprisingly psychedelic for a country that, you know, didn't secretly like flood its streets with LSD in the 60s. <laughs> So, you know, there was really a lot of like good stuff there, but I, but okay, there was a little bit of a, there were a few downsides to it as well. And one was that you had to submit all of your lyrics uh, to kind of a government board like Melodia that would sort of comb through it. And uh, like, I, I think, I think there's a misconception that like in Soviet Russia, they tell you what to write in song. But like, no, it wasn't really like that. They weren't singing songs like glorifying like Comrade Brezhnev or like blah, blah, blah. You know what I mean? Like they were mostly singing kind of like, like it was more like they would just stayed away from contentious kind of lyrics or anything that could be, everything was screened for having a kind of like antisocial or anti-government uh, kind of sentiment to it. So, but it, it honestly doesn't sound like that was the hugest problem for everybody, except for the fact that sometimes they wanted to be wild and experimental and that just doesn't exactly fit. Like it's, it's a little bit stifling. The other thing was that there were like regulations around performance uh, that were very particular. Like I think there was, uh, I forget if it was in this book or somewhere else, but when there was a prop, oh yeah, no, I think jo Joanna Stingray at one point was brought to like an official concert and they were playing 
And then in the middle of a song, uh, one of the uh, guitarists, their string broke. And everyone just stopped playing. The guitarist walked over and like patiently started like restringing his guitar. And the entire audience who were seated in chairs, uh, even though this is kind of a rock band, uh, just sat there patiently and waited for like five minutes while this guy restrung his guitar. And then the band like continued playing the song. <laughs> and to her, that was like insane. It was like bizarre. It was like why like in America, like the band would uh, improvise and basically start, you know, they'd, they'd start jamming or chatting with the audience or something while, you know, or they'd have somebody bring out a new guitar. But I guess the person she was with explained to her, well, no, they, they have uh, strict set lists approved before the show that they are not allowed to like improvise or deviate from. So it's just like, that's a natural inclination to like, if your thing, if your string breaks, like you just stop the performance, you fix it. And then you continue exactly the way you were going. So she kind of saw that as like, wow, like that's kind of lame and stifling, but okay. You know, fair enough. Maybe it is a little bit stifling, but then, okay. So then that was the official thing. If you were a musician, however, and you didn't want to make music under those conditions, like, it, I don't know the exact, you know, USSR criminal code uh, or whatever, but it seems like maybe it was nominally illegal to uh, produce music or it, I think it was nominally illegal to profit off of music uh, in concert performances or by making albums I if it wasn't it was licensed. Like, there wasn't like a venue to do it. Like there, there yes. were no like avenues to like basically make like go your own way. So like, yes. yeah. Because they talked about how, like, there were different venues where you could be an amateur and you could play. And a lot of them were, like, associated with, like, workplaces or just certain Yeah, like worker halls. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. A lot of entertainment was organized through, like, like the trade union, like, the state trade union for, you know, and that extended all the way to, like, you know, oh, the, the coal miners have, like, a resort community on, you know, in Yalta or something like that. Then mm-hmm. they all go to. So it'd be like that where they go down to the hall and then amateur entertainment is brought in. So but it was still pretty limited. And so if you wanted to be an unofficial musician, you basically could, but you didn't really have access to like sophisticated recording studios or big concert spaces. So you're right. There really was no kind of way to make um, money. But that started to change in the early 80s because there was a place called the Leningrad Rock Club that opened up. And uh, it was actually, I think, I don't know if saying it was run by the KGB is too strong a term, but it was definitely like run with KGB supervision, I guess you could say. Uh, It was also run according to the principles of democratic centralism. So like the members (laughs) of the club had to like vote on like, I guess, what bands they wanted to, you know, play there. And they had amateur night and stuff. But this this little place. Uh, this little club became kind of the nexus point for a lot of young musicians in the early 80s that, you know, like they were. So it's not like they were being chased down in the streets and like sent to Gulag uh, for playing like different kinds of music. It just was like contained to this place where like the KGB could keep an eye on them, I guess, um, because the attitude towards rock and roll in the Soviet Union was complicated, right? At that time, especially towards Western rock and roll. And I don't think it's like as extreme as kind of people maybe think it is like, you know, we watch an interesting documentary. If people want to get a sense of like the flavor, there's a really good like French 
British documentary called Rock Around the Kremlin, which profiles a few of these bands and features Joanna Stingray, I think briefly, in it. And I think it was made in 1985, so like before Gorbachev. It shows, I mean, kind of like this this comfy little scene, but it also shows that necessary, like there wasn't like... It's not like this fucking pussy riot thing that maybe a lot of people might want to have in their heads, basically, of like they were protesting against government and, you know, blah, blah, blah. Like it was like even the the kind of figurehead of, of Soviet rock, uh, Boris Grebenshikov, um, the head of the band Aquarium, um, is interviewed in it. And he's one of the few guys that speaks like perfect English. So he's like a good ambassador. And and he might eh, we'll do his hus check on him later. <laughs> but he he kind of stresses that. He kind of likes his life being an unofficial musician, and he probably could be an official musician if he wanted to be, but he's just not very interested in it. He's really He really gives off like a kind of beatnik vibe, but he seems to stress that he doesn't really have a lot of money, but he doesn't need a lot of money because everything, most of the things in his life are like, don't cost any money. Um, and Yeah, like and, you know, that's... It's a uh, he. He does say at one point in the documentary that he he likes living in socialist Russia. But you know you can also tell that there's a little bit of yeah. But I kind of don't like certain aspects of it. I don't like the the kind of the man telling me what kind of music I want to make. But it, it still is. It's it's very muted. It's much more muted than maybe one would expect, especially from like a bunch of Westerners like parachuting in and being like, "Wow, like you make kind of punk rock music. Do you hate the government?" And a lot of them are just kind of like, no, like, no, like, he's fine. Um, you know, and it's like- I just wish that maybe, you know, yeah, I got the vibe that like a lot of these groups, the, the underground scene that Joanna Stingray comes into, there was really less of this thing like, oh, we wish we were official. A lot of them could have been official. They just yeah. chose not to. Yeah. And a lot of it was like, we're kind of resentful that we're not being appreciated because we make really good art, but they had the means and the ability to do, to make their art. They just didn't want to be, you know, completely like, you know, working with the government. And it's funny because Boris, uh, shoot, what's his last name again? Grabenshikov. Grabenshikov. He tells this story or he, he's talking to Joanna Stingray and he says something like, yeah, I can work one 24 hour shift and have five days off. Yeah. And so I do. And then I make art and that is how I live. And I don't need a lot of money. You know, I can basically get by, I can do, I, I can spend with my time. What I like, I can choose to spend my time the way I want. How do you earn money? I do not uh, really earn it. Some somehow it happens that uh, when I need it, I have have it. I don't have a tons of equipment that I'd like to have, but so what? I have my guitar. That's sometimes that's enough for me. When I need more, I some somehow get more for a while. I mean, and, yeah, yeah. No, I, I think we had talked about that uh, before recording a little bit. How that really jumped out at me as a kind of thing that I think even Joanna Sting, like, I think she. It's good that she like notes that uh, about these mm-hmm. guys. Um, like also, you know, Victor Soy. Uh, you know, he worked uh, 
in a boiler room at a large apartment building and like kept working even as he was becoming like the biggest rock star in the country like kept his uh his state you know appointed day job essentially because he i think he said something like yeah no it it keeps me keeps my feet on the ground like i just kind of like it and it's not a big deal and i brought up to you how it's interesting how you know, I think Westerners look in and all they can focus on is like the government won't let them say whatever they want or like be like Marilyn Manson. Wah, like meh, they can't express themselves. But these guys. But then when you look at America and, you know, it, it ain't exactly easy for musicians to like survive like that option kind of uh, does. I mean, I, I think there are a lot of musicians who like work a day job so they can work on their music. But then when you think about all the stressors that are added on to like life in America of like you got to pay rent, like your food costs a lot of money, like you have to pay for health care, like you have to do everything else. And you're probably, you know, going to be stuck at like a low wage and like constantly it's going to be like really stressful. Whereas these people are kind of just opting out of like the Soviet rat race, if you will. You know, they're Mm -hmm. not really pursuing a lot of them also like have like postgraduate education. Like uh, Boris Gravenchikov was like studying mathematics, getting a mathematics Ph.D. and working at like a sociology institute like before he kind of quit and got a job as a night watchman, like you said, like working like on flexible hours, like, you know, basically working one 24 hour shift was enough to cover, you know, his expenses for like a week. And really like their disinterest in like making money is really fascinating. And I think even to the extent that some of these people had gripes against like the Soviet government and things like that, I think it's worth acknowledging that this is almost like even if these people personally thought like eh, fuck you like in drop off their success is to some degree materially like a product of like the socialist system where like you know it, it does bring to mind it's not quite on that utopian level of like that marx quote of like you know a man can like you know fish in the morning and blah 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 and cr- and critique after dinner And that kind Mm -hmm. of shit, you know, like that's kind of the goal of communism. Obviously, they weren't at, you know, full communism, but it still reflected that kind of value in society that like men and women should be able to have free time to pursue their like whatever they want to pursue and not be uh, chained to like the incentives of money making all the all the fucking time which like you can see was a relatively it seems like deeply ingrained value up through the early and mid 1980s and so i think that again like these narratives do get so complicated but like for example like the 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 so-called russian like yearning to have capitalism like even by joanna stingray's own account she doesn't start noticing that until like 1990 and then suddenly like a like a mind virus, like a plague. <laughs> it just starts to seep over everything where people are like walking around the street and like bragging about how much money they spent on like their boom box. And the guy's like, well, I spent $200 more. And people are walking yeah. around with like tags on their designer, like track suits and shit. And it's like, it sounds like an absolute, like uh, it sounds like a certain kind of mind war was waged on the Soviet people. And the dam like finally broke uh, right around 1990 and so I think we have to ask ourselves, you know, as we proceed further in this story, uh, d- did rock and roll play a role in that mind war? Right. I think that's the core question we want to get to. Like, what role did rock and roll have in undermining? Like, were the old stodgy KGB heads right, actually, that this was a potentially dangerous cultural force that needed to be kind of like monitored and like have an eye kept on it 
or else it could spiral out of control and become a vehicle for like pro-capitalist propaganda, like antisocial, like satanic bullshit, et cetera, et cetera. Which, you know, by the time like the Soviet Union's about to collapse, who comes in to do a concert sponsored by Time Warner in honor of freedom and democracy? It's like Pantera, Metallica. <laughs> like, oh, hold on. And just, I know this is out of order, but like basically uh, Joanna Stingray talks about Phil Anselmo's devilish voice. I, I like, noticed that. Fuck <laughs> off. He's literally a like Nazi. I know. I, I think I st- when I was watching like Red Wave stuff, like YouTube auto suggested like a F- Phil Anselmo concert in like Serbia or something from like a couple years ago. And it was like, it, I was like, who is this like Nazi that's singing? And I was like, oh, it's like the Pantera guy. Okay. Yeah. Uh, interesting. So yeah. And you know, it's just like so fuck. Yeah. And like ACDC uh, went mm-hmm. there as well. And ACDC is one of the bands that was banned by the Soviet government. There were a number of bands, pretty much. I think it's a misconception that bands like the Beatles were banned. They weren't like even in that documentary, Mm -hmm. uh, Rocking Around the Kremlin, like they go to a record store and like you could buy like Beatles albums. Like it's not that big a deal. It's just but but then I always want to source it because it's always been like a meme. But like you see it on Twitter, like this is a list of bands that like the Soviet government like outlawed and why it's like Black Sabbath. And it has like all the reasons laid on a, a you know, what a, a table. And it's like uh, Satanism, Nazi support, like antisocial attitudes. <laughs> and it's just yeah. like ACDC, Black Sabbath, like Pantera, Slayer, like Nazism, fascialiness, like Edgar Cottle. It, it's hard from their, like, it's really hard to argue with a lot of the things with a lot of those like heavier bands that they had a a kind of Wagnerian quality to them that I think was maybe rightfully triggering to the Soviets, right? Yeah, no, I mean, I think that it is, it might sound insane to some people, but there are definitely antisocial tendencies in certain rock music that, you know, you could argue maybe some of it is just kids having fun, but some of it is like not. Like, look at like, Varg Vakernis. Oh my uh, god, yeah. Like he like fucking murdered a guy. Like some of this stuff and is still like defending really it on Twitter, apparently. Yeah. Because he was a communist. See, it's that type of shit, mm-hmm. right? He was a capital C communist, so he had to die. Uh yeah, exactly. And it, you will see, like, not maybe not so much in like most of the bands that Joanna Stingray ran with, but a lot of the kind of wider bands in that orbit, once the Soviet Union does collapse, a lot of them kind of go a little bit mask off and get into various, like some of them end up being really into like national Bolshevism for a while. Some of them just go straight Mm -hmm. into more like right-wing Russian nationalism, like borderline kind of Nazi shit, you know, because there's no countervailing force at that point. Uh, basically to push back against it. And I mean, if if you look at, you know, Eastern Europe today, uh, you see a huge resurgence in like, I think particularly in like the hard rock genres that is like extremely kind of right wing and uh, reactionary, et cetera. But uh, yeah, I think that Joanna Stingray actually uh, unintentionally wandered into a good metaphor because she described how like, Towards the end of her time in Russia, which again, we're skipping, but like she was in there in the 90s when things were getting pretty bad. And she talked about how it was getting kind of scary for Westerners because the Soviet bear wasn't there to protect you anymore. And it was just a bunch of wolves. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, yeah, that's basically true. The The Soviet bear can be dangerous, but like you take that away and it's just a bunch of wolves that'll just tear people apart. Like Absolutely. that's what happened to Russia in the 90s. 
absolutely. I don't again, I don't think she uh, like meant this uh intentionally, but you know, she talks about being she was in the Soviet Union on Christmas Day 1991 and she watched on TV as the red flag of the Soviet Union was lowered, you know, uh from the Kremlin uh for the last time and says a line that ugh, it gets me. Uh, for all the years I didn't believe in Santa Claus, I had believed in the Russian people and a peaceful surrender of the past. And then the very next line of the next section is what do you mean the mafia would like to meet with me? <laughs> <laughs> that kind of sums it up. Yeah, yeah. But that's a great, so, yeah. Oh, I was so fucking mad when I read that because it was like <laughs> in 1993, Hello? like hundreds of people died. That was not a peaceful transition of power. Oh, oh my, yeah, the shelling of the parliament and uh, and just like the overall mayhem in society in general. That is a good passage that you pointed out though that because she spends most of the book with the KGB kind of leaning into that, like, ooh, KGB boogeyman. Like, there's a few times where they tail her. One time they bring her, they drag her into a room and start yelling at her in Russian and, like, trying to intimidate her. But mostly a couple times, like, some guys who are, like, professors asked to meet with her. And, like, she realizes they're, like, probably KGB and it's, like, awkward. But, yeah, then she's like, wow, huh. Like, actually, like, looking back on it, like nobody would have dared to touch me since the KGB was following me. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And so it's like the KGB was literally keeping her safe all these years and stuff. And, you know, but she has some interesting insights because I mean, honestly, how many Americans spent as much time as she did in the Soviet Union in the 1980s? Mm-hmm. And especially from this like young person, like, not overtly political like she wasn't working well maybe i mean wasn't officially working for the state department or like the cia or like an ngo or doing anything like that she was just like hanging out with all these like underground rockers and like kind of partying with them and having like fun little adventures in like leningrad and no honestly like reading the book was so weird because there would be like these nuggets of like parapolitical gold there would be like these interesting insights into art a lot of it was really boring. And then there would also be like this slice of life for like Soviet Russia that would just be like delightful to hear about. Like, Yeah, exactly. These little <laughs> tiny moments um, like them getting yelled at, like saying like the most the most feared people on the streets were like the babushkas in every neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And like they were rolling around in the grass one day and this like babushka just comes up and is like, what are you doing? You're going to ruin the grass for everybody. This is outrageous. Like, <laughs> you know, like they were more like intimidating than any like, you know, like KGB men or anything like that. Like, like just there's like little tiny um nuggets of good stuff or you know uh, both in i think both in her experiences there and also like bringing some of these rock stars to america for the first time and like some of their observations the most common one like it's really funny that boris yeltsin had like a psychedelic epiphany in a grocery store mm-hmm. because when she brings boris grebenshikov to america for the first time and he sees there's like 12 different kinds of yogurt he's like this is insane why do you have 12 (laughs) kinds of yogurt this is disgusting like what like who needs 12 kinds of yogurt like why like this doesn't make any sense to me you know so uh that's the magic of like visiting a grocery store when you're not dosed on acid from esalen right (laughs) exactly exactly he got psyoped later um (laughs) but anyways uh maybe we'll start we'll start to uh jump into uh to joanna's story and how she got sucked in to this underground world behind the Iron Curtain. Give me a B! B! Give me an H! H! Give me a B! B! What are we? 
So I think like I mentioned earlier, she grew up in Beverly Hills. And I think we didn't talk about her <laughs> biological father because uh, that was the first like red alarm emoji that kind of Please. jumped out that I, that I hadn't let's... known all these years. But uh, let's just see where. <sighs> also, passing note, she grew up in Topanga Canyon. <laughs> Topanga Canyon, where uh, where Bernie Leiden from the Eagles used to live with uh, Patty Davis, uh, Ronald Reagan's hippie uh, stepdaughter who uh, Nancy disowned for living with a hippie. Yes, uh, that, and I think where the Manson family also loved to kind of pop in and out. Not really quite as, uh, not as sus as Laurel Canyon, but like a similar kind of sus canyon uh, in the Los Angeles area. I mean, Los it's Angeles not very area. far away, right? It's not really that far. It's actually kind of, it connects with Malibu. So in some mm-hmm. ways, maybe it, it it is even more sus and kind of out of the way. Like you have to drive a little further um, away from like, the central part of LA to get to it. But then there's a big like Topanga Canyon, Topanga Canyon road that like goes over the mountains from the Canyon and then down to the PCH in Malibu. So it's like very like removed and kind of like secluded and you can kind of do your own thing. So a lot of like a lot of, you know, famous people, uh, I would say, you know, the more bougie famous people or like the David Geffens live down on Malibu, but maybe the more hippie dippy types uh, and the artists kind of live up in Topanga. But I'll just read like the first page um, from this chapter early in the book, uh, which is titled The Truth About Communism. OK, this is <laughs> Joanna writing. I was six or seven years old when my dad turned to me and said, don't ever, ever go behind the Iron Curtain. I have vivid memories from the mid-60s of him sitting in his warm, woodsy office making a movie, a documentary called The Truth About Communism, that he wrote, directed, and produced. It consumed his life for three or four years, splicing and dicing reels and reels of film, cutting, taping, and throwing remnants on the floor like empty bags of potato chips. He was extremely passionate about the USSR, with Ronald Reagan at his back narrating the film and making one of his first public statements against the evil empires, then governor of California. Oof. The truth about communism became a well-known anti-communist propaganda piece in the late 1970s, shown at high schools around the country, including mine. I believed my dad, his voice sticking in the back of my mind for years like a little alarm clock hidden under a pile of pillows. Yet at that time, Russia still wasn't a real part of my life. I spent my early years in Topanga Canyon in the Santa Monica Mountains, traipsing through the hills and biking to school or following my mom as she dragged me and my sisters to every musical that came through L.A. She divorced my father when I was 12, moving us to a rented duplex in Beverly Hills on the wrong side of the nicest theoretical railroad tracks in the world where palm fronds littered the overgrown yard and the hum of Wilshire Boulevard came down from the north. It was a block from Beverly Hills High School, the center of my thoughts in those days. Government corruption, impossibly long food lines, and KGB intimidation? I was more concerned with my big feathery hair, ditching classes, and stealing as many frozen brownies from my best friend's fridge as I could fit in my stomach. <laughs> <laughs> I lo- See, that that's one of those, like... Uh, beautiful LA moments. Uh, Beside my father, my only exposure to Russia came from a class I loved on Russian history. In the late 1970s, the state Also, by the way, Hmm. sorry, real quick. She says that's the only connection. And then she herself contradicts that like literally a dozen times. I know. (laughs) And like her father itself, like, uh, oh, I guess besides my father. But yeah, it's true. Like, uh, okay, so my only exposure to Russia came from a class I loved on Russian history. In the late 1970s, the State Department endorsed educational exchanges 
with the USSR, and one incredible teacher of mine took it upon himself to plan a week-long trip there over, over winter break. My best friend Diana was going, and I was desperate to join her, in part because I knew how much it would piss off my communist-hating father, and in part because I didn't want to be left out of any adventure. My mom worked a ton of extra hours, like always, to try to send me on the field trip, but in the end, I was back in the duplex while everyone else boarded a plane and was swept away, leaving me with my bike and such a dis severe disappointment that I wouldn't forget that feeling for years. So then she got exposed to rock and roll uh, by her high school boyfriend, Paul, and uh, <laughs> she said it was the only thing that could eclipse all my egocentric problems and teenage angst and make me feel like there was power in the world that could sway even the tallest of giants. Paul was a ticket scalper, a, a tall street smart guy playing a bunch of strange characters to camp out uh, in line for days to buy the best seats. So she got to see David Bowie, the Rolling Stones, Alice Cooper, Elton John, and Paul McCartney in Wings, to name a few. And then she decided that she wanted to be in a band. So the first band she joined was managed by her friend uh, Jeff Smith who collected a group of decent musicians with dirty hair and cheerful eyes. Standing at the front with an oversized microphone and silly curly hair, I was a typical high school singer who could belt like a caribou and couldn't stay in tune. I had the look, I had tons of energy, but I also had no idea what I was doing. Here's another interesting one. Jeff's father, Joe, ran Capitol Records. Um, so that's, yeah, <laughs> Joe Smith, uh, the guy who um, I believe is known for signing a lot of very famous acts, including, as it happens, uh, The Grateful Dead. Back in, uh, yep. So, um, uh, so he, she says back then, Capital was the big time, a dizzying 13 story, 13 story tower on Hollywood Boulevard and Vine that loomed over the tourists and wannabe sweethearts with its big sign and disinterested attitude. Jeff lived in a big house on Roxbury Drive in Beverly Hills, and we'd go over there to practice inside the Ivy and Brick. His father came into the smoking room to hear us bang around and jump up and down like we were the big hits on tour already. Talk about putting your father in an awkward position. We were barely good enough to play at our high school talent show, but Jeff dragged his father in as if his dad was supposed to sign us right then and there. Joe, to his credit, sat through whatever terrible song we had decided to play and just kept nodding along in time. At the end, he looked up and said, you know what, kids? You just have to keep practicing. If you want it badly <laughs> enough, you'll keep at it and you'll get better and better. So, you know, pretty nice to hear from the head of Capitol Records. And uh, yeah, so, you know, she was very excited about that. And then she started going to UCLA in uh, the summer of 1981. And uh, actually, no, sorry. She first went to USC on a diving scholarship because she was a competitive diver. And then she went to Boston University for a change of pace. But then she decided to transfer back to UCLA and finish her degree in the land of perpetual summer and smog. So she was, you know basically hanging out the go-go's were getting popular at that point so you know the idea of like a cool punk like you know girl band seemed like something that she wanted to sort of uh, get involved with but you know by this time her mother had remarried to what she describes as an incredible self-made lawyer real estate developer art collector and well-known philanthropist now she almost doesn't mention him and it almost drove me crazy but let me see what was his name he's still alive he's 101 years old frederick m nicholas is her stepfather and he he will pop up in the story he is known as quote mr downtown culture for his role in building the museum of contemporary art moca the geffen contemporary the walt disney concert hall 
and uh, the founding of Public Counsel, the nation's largest public interest law firm. Frederick M. Nicholas has combined his legal career with a heavy real estate involvement to become an institution builder in the arts in Los Angeles. So he's kind of like on like a Noah Cross level of like being an L.A. like real estate kingpin slash lawyer slash philanthropist, et cetera. Which like, do you did you notice there that like she has such a she has extreme energy of like the poor kid at the rich high school? Yes. But like she basically finds a way to tell and like brag about her mom working <laughs> when she clearly like her mom didn't work before and didn't work after. But like there's this period of time when she was maybe doing a double shift somewhere. Like she finds a yeah. way to shoehorn that in. Yeah, she does. She does mention that. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's like she's simultaneously kind of like boasting throughout the book how many famous friends like her parent her mom and her stepdad have but yes like so many i think beverly hills kids a little bit circumspect about uh their level of like that i mean she would not be able to have done the things that she did in these subsequent years if she was not like a rich like beverly hills kid basically because she mostly wasn't working a job like she I mean, she mentions working at like a travel agency briefly, but like basically I think her parents were just like giving her lots of money to like buy expensive equipment to go to the Soviet Union again and again. Yeah. So she wanted to become a rocker, but her parents thought it was imprudent. And uh, they said, do you have any idea how lucky you are? Your stepfather is paying for you to get an education. And her mom threatened to cut her off. She didn't finish her degree. Um, so she stayed at UCLA and graduated in 1983 and she recorded an EP with her high school friends. Uh, I think it was the song Beverly Hills Brat, which she made a, <laughs> uh, a music video for. Here's another interesting interlock. Through my old boyfriend, Paul, I met Marshall Burrell, comedian Milton Burrell's nephew. Um, now, wasn't Milton Burrell like, was he, a was he a Bohemian Grove member? I feel like I've seen something like sus about him, but I, I can't recall it right now. But anyways, so uh, Milton Burrell's nephew was pretty well connected. And before long, we talked a few people into investing in my career. I re-recorded Beverly Hills Brat as my first single, and we shot a video between the palm trees and gated mansions, rolling down the wide streets in a Rolls Royce with me with wild hair. The record came out and was available for purchase in Tower Records, a store I consequently frequented daily as I stood in front of my EP, welling with pride and smiling happily and hopefully at every punk, hipster, and businessman that walked by. I went on a small promotional tour and played a few intimate shows here and there, but my biggest splash was at Studio 54. It was 1983. Yeah, yikes. Uh, when New York was bursting out of its glossy reputation and full of soul grit and artistic expression, blah, blah, blah. So yeah, I mean, uh, Studio 54, I don't know, just makes me think of Donald Trump, like owned by the mafia, like just so much such shit, but just hey. people doing cocaine in the bathrooms. But Milton, Milton Berle's nephew can get you booked there, I guess, uh, pretty easily. And, um, oh, by the the hits are going to keep on coming. So uh, <laughs> as she goes to 54, she says, years prior, my mom and stepdad had hosted a party at their house for Andy Warhol, where I asked him to sign the Rolling Stones Sticky Fingers album cover that he designed. And he drew a vagina instead. God. Cool. <laughs> Sicko. Um, what the fuck? Uh, anyway, and so then, yeah, her, her family friends with Andy Warhol. Uh, let's <laughs> add that to the list. And so she and he'll played, come up again. Oh, he he will. He definitely will. So she managed to reconnect with him inside Studio 54's white paneled walls, and he eventually uh 
connected me with the club's management. So at midnight on 80, in October 83, Studio 54 played the video to Beverly Hills Brat as I lip-synced on a high bridge that moved out over the twinkling crowd. I felt like I had made it, like I was stardust falling in everyone's eyes. But I guess her American rock career would only uh, last a few months. Her manager, Marshall Burl, had taken the money we raised together from my friends and contacts and invested in Rat, a heavy metal band with tattoos, <laughs> long hair and eyeliner. My high-flying stardust days were over. Aw. Well, yeah, I mean, Rat sucked, but, you know, I guess <laughs> it happens. But she didn't forget Joe Smith's positive mantra that if she tried hard enough, she could get success. So she was really bummed out, devastated and depressed. And eventually she called her sister, Judy, who was studying abroad in London. She wanted to come over there. And Judy said, well, I don't know. I'm going on a school tour to Russia, Moscow and Leningrad. It's only $300 with all expenses paid. So this is the beginning of 1984. With Ronald Reagan in the White House, the State Department had started aggressively pushing for more educational and cultural exchanges Hmm, as an almost subversive way to show Soviet citizens that Americans were freer, richer, and happier. Memories, almost subversive. Almost, almost, subver almost, almost. subversive. Uh, yeah, it makes me think of Peter Schweizer's victory. Um, hmm, interesting. <laughs> so memories of my missed high school opportunity to go to the USSR flooded back, mingling with the anxiety over my rock star career that stung so strongly. It was like a frying pan to the face. I want to go. So she checked if there was space. Uh, there was. And so she picked up the phone again and called her best friend from high school to tell her she was finally off to see the Soviet Union. And uh, her friend says, this is kind of weird because this is this is really how she gets connected. Her friend says, um, hello, my sister married a Russian immigrant. <laughs> she reminded me. She gave me his name, Andrei Falalyev, whom I invited to lunch to talk about my trip. You have to meet my buddy, were the first words out of his mouth as he slid into a plastic red booth at the deli. He's amazing. Are you going to Leningrad? That's the plan, I said. I'm not sure if we'll be able to leave the tour, though. He's the most famous underground rocker in Russia. Everyone loves him. I didn't know rock existed in Russia, I laughed, wondering what could compare to the American stars I'd heard. How would I get a hold of him? As you would maybe expect of an underground, grit-and-grin type of guy, Andre's buddy didn't have a phone, but his friend did. I took a name and number, saying I'd try to track him down. You've got to be careful, Joanna, Andre said. These guys aren't <laughs> supposed to hang out with foreigners. It's considered illegal activity. He leaned forward across his plate of pancakes on the sticky table, as if sharing a secret. But Boris Grubenshikov doesn't care. <laughs> so, okay. Um, huh, okay, so... This is interesting because like Falalayev will come up again and all she say, I couldn't find any information about like his family, but she mentions that he comes from like a very distinguished family in Leningrad that has their own private like estate and like DACA. Um, the only Falalayev I could find was like a Soviet air marshal from World War II who was named Falalyev, who maybe was from the same family. But it, it almost sounds like this is a family that was like well-established, like pre-Bolshevik revolution and like was like supportive of the Bolsheviks, but were like allowed to keep certain privileges and traveled abroad yeah. a lot. And like the guy moved. Interesting how her, her friend goes on that trip in high school and then her friend's sister ends up marrying this kind of prominent young Soviet emigre who then tells Joanna Stingray, you have to go find Boris Grabenshikov in Leningrad. 
Yeah. And like, <laughs> so when the KGB, again, we're jumping a little bit, like when the KGB talks to her, they're like, what Russians have you been talking to in America? And she's like, what are you talking about? But she knows literally she lists like several Russians that she knew before she ever went to the Soviet Union. And mm. surprise, surprise, they are they all have very interesting connections, actually. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, yeah, that's one of those things in this book that is kind of like just sort of lightly glossed. And she is kind of, you know, um, with all due respect to Joanna Stringray, she's kind of gaslighting the KGB a little bit. she's kind of she's gonna be like lol you think i'm like cia (laughs) like you know like it but it's like yo like if they know what your real background is and like how politically connected your like stepfather is then actually like they're they're kind of doing their due diligence i would say and you know they never really did anything bad to her anyways but anyways so in 1984 like she goes to leningrad on this trip and um it's interesting that she mentions, you know, uh, I think uh, she says the guards took our bags under the floor to ceiling fluorescent lights and left to go through everything, pawing clothes aside until all that was left were the suitcase's bones. Judy and I stood there side by side, shifting from one foot to the other as time became yet another foreign concept. I hated the thorny feeling of being powerless, much like I imagine it feels to visit a place like North Korea today. <laughs> So uh, <laughs> as somebody who's visited uh, the DPRK uh, in recent years, I sort of get what she means. But also, uh, you know, it, it sounds like I, I don't know if that's a direct one to one comparison. At least when I went to the DPRK, uh, there really was no deviating from the tour. But it sounded like the the tours in the Soviet Union, they were kind of constructed in that similar way of like there's going to be a schedule. You're going to stay at this like hotel where foreigners stay at um you're going to have kind of your government guides that are going to kind of keep an eye on you but uh i don't know if it it really depends either the security was very lax on these tours even in 1984 or she was uh doing some real sneaky shit basically yeah because she basically from her description she just ditches completely and then nothing happens to her nothing happens to her so she and she had already brought like i guess some of the things were stolen from her suitcase she claims by the customs um she claims they had taken her hair dryer tampons toothpaste lipstick and everything else they couldn't easily get uh oddly enough they didn't touch my album cover or press photos i brought to show boris how a real rock star plays the game <laughs> they uh, don't want that shit yeah right she said that in hindsight i should have taken it as a sign the moscow airport customs agents preferred my tampons over my album which is probably true. Um, so it's, so you could tell she she's already coming with like, a, like this is an important thing that she wants to do is like, I'm going to go meet this rock guy and I'm going to show him all my stuff. And uh, she kind of goes there thinking like, I'm going to impress him because I yeah. played at Studio 54. I have an album out. And she, she has that energy of people who smuggle Game of Thrones into the DPRK. <laughs> yes, exactly. And can I just, yeah. Can I, can I add? Like uh-huh. the way she writes this book, it's almost like designed to drive me crazy because like <laughs> she describes the Soviet Union, or I should say she describes Russia as her wonderland. Yes. And time and time again, she uses Alice in Wonderland language to describe Russia. You're and right. she describes it as her like, like her place in like that she just loves so much. She loves Russia. Her and Twilight it's, Zone. And it's like, okay. 
relatable Soviet Union. Yeah, I wish I could go visit too. But like, <laughs> she Not, basically like yeah. keeps I, I, bringing it up to like Lewis Carroll shit. It's very creepy. I know what you mean. I mean, there's also the thing where she talks about, and maybe this is just kind of a normal thing, but how uh, when she gets kind of emotionally overwhelmed, she blocks out entire periods of her life. I don't know if she, you, you picked she up on that. Says that she dissociates. She dissociates. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so you know, I mean, okay. That's interesting. Um, who knows? Maybe she was being brought to like a Beverly Hills hypnotherapist, you know, after her parents <laughs> got divorced. I don't know. But uh, but, you know, she, she was, you know, uh, the Beverly Hills brat is uh, is there in April 1984. Uh, she spent three days in Moscow uh, and she could tell the rules were very, very important to our communist ringmasters. A hard pill to swallow for someone who had been driving since 14 and sneaking out of high school weekly. So, you know, they were told they drilled into their heads. They had to stick with the tour at all times. If they didn't. Our little denim butts could be kicked out on the next overnight flight. So she spent three days in Moscow, which might as well have been three days on a different planet, surrounded by Moscow's bold communist era murals and statues that glorified hard work and community. Oh, disgusting, right? <laughs> they were captivating and colorful, like some sickening delusional drug. Um... <laughs> Okay, is that really <laughs> sick? Like hard work and community, Ew, like sick, like delusional drug. Um, okay, there were no advertisements, Ugh, no billboards, no big street signs, just generic words in Russian on the buildings that said things like apteka, pharmacy, or bulokshnaya, bakery, in block letters. The people wore blues and grays like bruises on their bodies. Few smiled and no one waved back at me. Everyone seemed unhappy to be there, waiting in the long public lines for their medicine and bread. The whole city felt cold, unwelcoming, and rigid. Uh, okay. Soon, though, I began to notice... It's like, her, okay, uh, has like, she yeah. been to the Midwest? Like, I, well, yeah, Exactly. Like, did, did, you, <laughs> did you take a trip to Detroit in 1984? Like, uh, you know, I mean... It's a, but I know what she means even, like, if you drive yeah. through, like, Pyongyang, you can project a kind of image onto it of like, look at all these people. Like they're just standing in lines and like walking around. Oh my God. They must be so they're wearing clothes that look the same. Oh my God. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. like it, this is definitely the daughter of the guy who made the truth about communism <laughs> talking here, <laughs> you know, uh, which is to be expected. But, uh, but so she said she began to notice an artistic side to Moscow the sparkling eyes of an otherwise scowling and disinterested city. We saw historical landmarks, museums, buildings, and city parks, many of ugh, many of which were designed before the communist revolution and still reflain the flirty nostalgia of a previous time, just like Shenyun. The Onion Domes, <laughs> Russia before communism. The Onion Domes of St. Basil's Cathedral were psychedelic in a stormy sea of dormant colors. Little by little, I could sense that somewhere deep down, the underbelly of the Soviet Union was warm and vibrant, hidden under all the metal armor. The country had obviously conditioned itself throughout the communist era to accept a characterless chill, but there was still a rich culture underneath the unnerving facade. I found myself wishing the Russian people could celebrate their colorful side, wishing that someone could crack a smile or spill a laugh. It made me angry uh -oh, to see how people bought into this official communist Moscow mentality. I remember thinking then that my father was basically right, that the Soviet Union was an awful place overrun by gargoyles and that I'd never want to visit again. Oof. But then on the fourth day, they went to Leningrad. Right away, it was obvious that the city had an energy and an excitement that was much easier to find than Moscow. 
There was more color, soft yellows and pale blues and deep greens reflecting off the silvery canal waters and brightening the more Baroque and neoclassical architecture and onion dome churches. My discontent was suddenly replaced by wonder, the dark blanket of the city more enchanting than sinister, like something out of a Siberian fairy tale. And so as soon as she checked in the hotel, she told her sister, I was going to find this rocker guy, Boris. I was sick of the official tour, locked into a glacial itinerary of statues and parks. So she decides to go auto warm beer and uh, go off the grid. And she thought, you know, the challenge of finding Boris would be exciting and spice things up. And, uh, you know, as an American, she felt with exceptionalism running through her veins, she felt like she'd probably be fine, even if she got caught. Classic American behavior. Classic American behavior. So she, so, <laughs> okay, yes. <laughs> no, uh, there's also a quote. I don't know if you were going to get to it, but she says, she just walking around Leningrad, she's, so she sees, one thing I noticed before I came to Leningrad was how the people who I saw in the streets looked like machines. Is there even emotion between family members? <laughs> and it's just like, you, she's just Oof. like are do these people even have an inner life like <laughs> yeah no they're npcs they're all np they're communist npcs obviously i mean i guess eventually she'll realize that that is not the case but i mean that's what that's what a good old-fashioned anti-communist propaganda will do to a young brain i guess so she calls the phone number that falaliev uh gave her in new york and uh this uh individual named seva uh, picks up the phone and she says hi i'm joanna from california is seva there and she gets hung up on and uh then she calls again and says my name is joanna i'm from america my friend andre told me to call you to get in touch with his friend boris i'm a musician too and so he asked where are you staying he spoke enough english and he said come to the big metro station around the corner by your hotel at 5 p.m and hung up so you know she decided uh she talks with her sister and uh, or she goes with her sister. Uh, oh my God. Like they do like her sister's like, Oh my God, we're going to get murdered. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, we're getting so much trouble. And she says, Oh, come on. I don't know what to tell you. I really want to go. We got to just bite the bullet. She says, there were real bullets here, Joanna. <laughs> and you know, so, so they, yeah. Yeah, they lie and say that they're not feeling well and they're going to stay in and go to bed. And so they, then they snuck out the back door and they went to the train station and they find Seva and Boris meet them there. And so they grab their arms right away and keep moving. We're going to my place, said Seva as he pulled me along through the crowd. His long legs took one stride for every two I took. We can talk there. We aren't supposed to meet with foreigners. You never know who's an informant. <laughs> I glanced at him in disbelief. Did he really think anyone would assume I was a threat with my dangling budget earrings and mismatched layers? He lowered his voice. I'm serious. He pulled Judy and me aside into a covered doorway. Boris leaned casually against it, nodding along as Siva instructed us, don't speak English in public and never tell anyone you're an American. He pulled at his short beard with his thumb and pointer finger. Come on, we have to get off the street. Like, what is this, the Terminator apocalypse? Like, Jesus. <laughs> um, so, yeah, uh, he says, if anyone ever catches you in public alone, tell them you were separated from your tour. Yes, best to avoid trouble. So they uh, they go to Seva's apartment in the center of Leningrad. Um in a, she has to say in a Stalinist neoclassical building that was slumped and dull of course okay we get it like there's not enough color on Stalinist buildings all right but at least everyone had a home anyways uh <laughs> you know uh so yeah okay there is a they went you know they, they go up into the apartment and uh you know I guess it's a cool funky place with like art knickknacks kind of everywhere and a tiny kitchen um and 
they start hanging out. And interestingly, Seva's uh, bedroom is full of, um, or has tons of Beatles and John Lennon kind of posters everywhere. Yeah, was he was he the uh, the Beatles guy, quote unquote, or is that a different guy? He isn't the Beatles guy, but I think he introduces him to a guy that only speaks in Beatles song lyrics, which I don't. <laughs> is that real? I don't like, know how you could even do that. Like, uh, like he just uh, Joanna. <laughs> all you need is love. Uh, I am walrus. Like he just like yells out <laughs> like random things. She loves you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like he just that's all he talks in is like Beatles uh, lyrics, basically. Um, but yeah, so they they hang out, and you know, she said that like the contrast between Russians in public and in private could not have been more striking. Like jumping between an ice bath and a hot tub. So uh, she says Seva looked like a cross between George Harrison and Jesus Christ. Um, he had a low-key vibe and casual cadence to his posture. Boris, on the other hand, uh, reminded her of David Bowie with his flowing blonde hair that framed his angular chin and bright blue eyes. He had an exceptional spirit that overwhelmed his chiseled physical stature and made him appear 10 feet tall, even just lounging next to me. To my surprise, Boris's English was as good as Seva's. As we talked, Boris pulled out a piece of white paper and an old plastic film can. He poured grass from the can on the paper, licked it, rolled it, lit it, and smoked. I thought he was smoking a joint, but when I asked, he said it was called a Papirossi cigarette. The smoke was sweet and transparent and framed his face in this angelic way that made him seem even more supernatural. So yes, that is Boris Grabenshikov, the lead singer of Aquarium, who is like kind of credited as like the godfather of like Russian rock and uh, often compared to like Bob Dylan in a lot of ways, but like a much better singer than Bob Dylan. <laughs> like, yeah. like he doesn't sound like Bob Dylan. It's kind of a low bar. To it it is a pretty bit. low bar, uh, but also, you know, sings in English and in, uh, by this point, yeah, he was already quite fluent. Um, and I guess what he says, uh, she asks, uh, Joanna's sister asks him, how in the world is your English so good? And Boris says, uh, we had f four of the best teachers in the world. Elvis, Dylan, Lennon, and McCartney. He went on. When you listen to their records every day, you start to wonder what they're saying. Then you get a bilingual dictionary and just start looking up words. It's not that hard, really. And Judy asks, how did you get their records? He says, first, we listen on shortwave radio from London. Uh, and I believe when he went on David Letterman years later, he uh, David Letterman asked him the same question. And he's like, what, was that on Voice of America? And he's like, yes, yes, Voice of America. Uh, so he was, eh, he was bumping that voice of America uh, growing up as a kid. <laughs> I guess, what are you going to do? Uh, but he's, you know, uh, but Seva uh, says the black market has almost everything. Boris said, we don't just listen. We sing the songs too. Anyone who plays music will probably speak at least basic English. After I found the Beatles, I started reading American poets like Jack Kerouac and Allen Ginsberg. Uh, okay. Um, <laughs> I widened my eyes and nodded like I was also a big fan, of, but in reality, I had only the faintest idea of the sultry spirited figures who wore those names. All I remembered from university was the semester at sea I'd taken across the world, dipping my toes into the Mediterranean, but never into on the road or Dharma bums. These guys knew more about my culture than I did. Huh. Every once in a while, Boris continued, someone gets their hands on an American movie and we all gather around to watch it. So, yeah, so the Boris, you know, is a uh, appreciator of American culture. 
um it seems i guess it's funny that even beyond the iron curtain like the sort of a boomer like cliche of every single musician of like a certain era being like how do you get into music the beatles even holds true for this guy in leningrad which is just i don't not like the beatles but like i don't know jimmy how do you feel about that (laughs) i just do not like the beatles i mean i understand that they're catchy like but like I've always liked the Beach Boys more, and I like I liked, like like Motown more. Like oh, yeah. Motown's like, so much better. Like I, I just the idea of fetishizing the one this one group, and like yes, they wrote some good songs and everything, but like they they're held up to. It makes me want to believe that they were a Tavistock psyop or something, or like yeah, they were hypnotizing well, they made, the world. They sound like Fisher Price, like children's toy music. Like yeah, I, yeah. Exactly. Um, as, as my dad always said, who was like just a little bit too old of a boomer um, mm-hmm. to get caught in the psyop, they were always a little too teeny bopper for him. Yeah. <laughs> Which I guess well, like yeah, they are. They really are. And even their psychedelic stuff. I mean, God. But uh, it's it just like I mean, I think a lot of it's like I don't know. Like it, it's good. But at the same time, uh yeah, the fetishization of it that that is like still at, at like absolutely at a peak like to this day in 2021, and even you know influenced all these Soviet musicians. Um, I mean, I, maybe it makes sense because it's simple; you can learn to play it or something. <laughs> yeah, I guess in like the, the the like the songwriting of it is very kind of straightforward and uh, like especially the Ramones speak- for punk or something. Like you can yeah. everyone can play a Ramones song true true exactly Uh, like it's it's broad enough to be like totally universal but yeah they all did um like the beatles but uh but then you know okay going just going back uh real quick to the you know joanna stingray thinks that like she's the rock star in this room and like they're just some randos so they they asked to hear like play us your music joanna so she played them beverly hills brat and boys they're my toys on her walkman (laughs) um boris boris's reaction is funny he says uh this is really good but what is a brat (laughs) uh she explained that they were the rich kids with whom she'd grown up and like was one uh the posers and the players with their shiny cars and upturned noses uh ha we don't have that problem here seva said he took the plastic headphones i agree i like it uh i mean yeah it's not the great it does not hold up to aquarium i think we can safely say um i've listened to beverly hills brat but then okay so then she asks like oh well like do you have any of your music boris says yeah but only on cassette not on a record like you we don't have access to a studio we need someone who works at a real studio to borrow a tape machine for the weekend if someone gets a hold to a tape of a tape recorder for a couple of days everyone shows up to record the tapes are copied and distributed all throughout the country Sometimes we even make artistic covers, just like in America. And, you know, she, she asks, why can't you record in a real studio? And they say, because we're not an official band. Seva explains, like we said, some groups have signed government contracts. They can play in public and get paid. They have access to studios and high-quality instruments, and they can release music on Melodia, the only record label in Russia. She asks them, why don't you do that? Boris paused and leaned forward like he was simultaneously teaching a lesson to a child and sharing a secret with me as if he'd known me our whole lives. Quote, because official bands have to turn over their lyrics first to the government, 
they're censored. That makes them dull. But everyone has to have a government job here. So for some, being in an official band is a job like any other. I used to be a night watchman. It was great. If I worked for 24 hours straight, I could take the next five days off. It gives me time to play. Now I'm a music tutor and I work when I want. I might play my own music illegally underground, but I'm more free this way. It's really not so bad. So yeah, like like you said earlier, like he has a pretty nice little setup going on and uh, doesn't seem to mind not being an official band. Um, but okay, he gives her a tape, right? She puts her headphones on in a Walkman and she said from the first chord that filled her head, the music was haunting and spiritual. And when Boris sang, his voice was piercingly distraught and absolutely consuming. The music was driving and frenetic, a wolf howling or a waterfall blasting over boulders and down an 80-foot drop. And even though I didn't understand a word, I felt enlightened and magnified. It felt deep, grand, and intense, conveying simultaneous alternate realities of despair and hope, sadness and joy, darkness and ecstasy. It was pure. It was Boris. What is this? This is she's like describing a meme where like Peppa Pig puts on like headphones or what is it like Arthur or whatever? It's just like <laughs> oh, I, this, oh my gosh! I know it's but you know I think especially after listening to Beverly Hills Brat putting on an aquarium song um, 
I guess you might have that kind of reaction to it that, wow, this is like way better. This is really interesting. Yeah. So I guess at that point she realized that like here she was thinking was she was some big shot American rocker from Studio 54 over whom all these repressed Russian musicians would drool, but she could not have been more wrong. She realized she was just a silly kid with sugary dreams writing dumb songs about my high school classmates. Boris had more talent in one song that I could ever hope to have in my entire body. It was like a strike of lightning illuminating the world of music for me. And you know, blah, blah, blah. She goes on to more things. And then, uh, he invites her to an underground concert, uh, for the first time. And I think that is at the, no, she didn't go to the Leningrad rock club initially. It was at like an abandoned property or something. And she goes to see Sergei Kuryokin, the Capitan, uh, who is like kind of a performance artist and everything else. I mean, assuming that she wouldn't have known what this music sounded like before going there, right? That's also something that's like interesting to remember is that like she couldn't even go to like a record store in like Leningrad and like buy an album to like listen in advance or like. Unless, you know, some like CIA agent like gave her a tape like before she went or something. But she doesn't mention that like the Russian guy who told her about Boris, like he didn't have any aquarium tapes uh, to to give her an example. Just said, oh, he, he's a rock musician. So I guess, you know, maybe her maybe she did get like red wave pilled right then and there. And well, the know. interesting <laughs> thing, too, is that like she the first guy she meets in russia like the first musician mm-hmm. i i don't know tell me if you agree with this but uh grubenshikov is like i got the read that he was probably the most political of the like leningrad clique that she fell in with like he's maybe more a dissident than the others than more than kino probably definitely more than kino um It's hard to say because he seems to have like, I guess his lyrics overall are not expressly. I mean, none of these bands really were had like expressly political lyrics, but Mm -hmm. in terms of his vibe, I think he did have a kind of beatnik sensibility. And even though I think it's sometimes he would kind of cooperate with the KGB to some extent. But it sounded like later, like maybe around 85, 86, uh, that maybe it flared up a little bit. Like, And also, I mean, the thing he was most known for up to this point was I think the Tbilisi Rock Festival in 1980, where Aquarium was like invited to play alongside the official bands for the first time. And I, th- I forget what happened. I think there might have been like a riot or something because maybe Aquarium like strayed from their set list and like did something and you know they got like kind of thrown off stage and like arrested and then were kind of like that was maybe an opportunity for them to become an official band but they kind of blew it up and decided to be kind of rowdy instead and then kind of you know fast forward a couple years he's kind of building this like scene in leningrad but like seems kind of uninterested in becoming an official band so yeah i'd say maybe yeah he's it it's tough to to really pin down i'm looking it up right now and i apparently like there was something at that tbilisi rock festival where like they were doing something specifically that like like, I don't know exactly what they were doing, but it caused him to basically get kicked out of the Komsomol. That's right. He got kicked out of the Komsomol. That, yeah. That's right. Exactly. Um, so, yeah, he, I mean, he had, 
Yes. Uh, he was I, doing something, yeah. He was doing something. I'm trying to see exactly what it was because I read about that a while ago. Yeah, the, the festival was organized by Artemi Troitsky, who was like the Soviet rock critic, like the only one, like in the 80s. It was kind of called the Soviet Woodstock. Um, and it was intended to promote the development of, uh, of what was called... Another name for the official music was VIA music, uh, which kind of stands for a vocal instrumental ensemble. So bands mm -hmm. like Pesniari were uh, a VIA bands. So Boris Gerbenchkov's Aquarium was left without laurels. It was kind of a competition, like judged by a jury. But the mm -hmm. band's outlandish stage antics made Aquarium into a symbol of the Soviet alternative culture. The jury members walked out of a concert when the musicians drank port wine right on the stage and made provocative body movements with <laughs> Gerbenchikov playing his guitar in the prone position. The show came as a shock to the organizers and led to an effective ban of the band. Yet Aquarium managed to organize a second concert in Gori, Georgia, in a spacious circus hall near the birthplace of Joseph Stalin. The concert was filmed by a Finnish TV crew, and the segments were included in a 40-minute film of the Tbilisi Festival called Soviet Rock. So I wonder if they did anything at that second concert in Georgia, in, in Gori, which also pissed off uh, the authorities. But I mean, also at the same time, like drinking port wine on stage and making, <laughs> quote, provocative body movements. was like not exactly like, you know, down with uh, socialism, maybe uh, at the same yeah. time. But at the same time, like he... He definitely had what it says on uh, Gromenchikov's Wikipedia is that after that incident, a covert KGB bound report pinned the shenanigans at the festival on Aquarium, which which caused Gromenchikov to lose his day job and membership in Komsomol, the Young Communist League, which was the career kiss of death for a Soviet citizen in 1980. So I think he was working as like a mathematician at a sociology institute or something in 1980 and was in the Komsomol, but then he got kicked out after the KGB decided he was, I guess, sus. Um, and then, yeah. you know, and then he was working as like a night watchman and like kind of hanging out in Leningrad and sort of, you know, continued making music sort of in this underground. So he definitely could have, and maybe he, I mean, even in these interviews with Westerners, like in 1985, there's definitely the possibility that he's like not putting all his cards on the table and saying for like, for very understandable reasons, uh, maybe tactical reasons, to be like, no, 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 I like, uh, I like socialism. I, I'm well, totally happy with uh, everything overall. Like, it's that's, fine. That's the thing with like Stingray too, and like a lot of these bands from this Leningrad clique. They're basically like before Glasnost and Perestroika. They were like, no, music's just apolitical. Like we just you know it can bring the world together but like it, it it doesn't have politics and then like the moment after perestroika they're like this music is for perestroika yeah yeah no that's definitely true in a lot of ways like uh even though there still is like disagreements over some of those like big hits and like to what extent were they like because even like i mean victor soy who will come up uh, soon in the story had some of the biggest anthems that are even used by like liberal like color revolution like nato people today is like uh um uh which is like kind of like the glasnost anthem uh but you know it translating it like there you get into kind of like subtleties of like intent and like even like translating like from the russian into the english like it's common today 
to like translate for every time I see an article about something in like Belarus or something like that, the, and they mention that like Peterman is being played, I, I notice that it's kind of common to be like translated as like we're demanding changes or like we yeah. demand changes. But uh, even Joanna Stingray points out that the lyrics to that song are like we are waiting for change. Like the waiting aspect is emphasized, and it's not like a political demand song. It's like describing somebody waiting like with all this like pent up energy for something to change, which still is like could definitely be interpreted politically and is like a call against, you know, uh, to rise up or whatever. But it's a little bit like more subtle than like what maybe people want to twist it into. Uh, it's not rage against the machine. No, <laughs> something else. it's not. Fuck you. I won't do what you tell me uh, <laughs> or you know, something like that. started in like 1982 was a place that they described i think the first person said uh you see we have a very funny kind of organization right here for the last two years it's called the rock club and the members are just all the amateur underground bands it is sponsored by the kgb so yeah so i guess uh it was an organization uh, i think like we said was run uh on principles of democratic uh, centralism and was like <laughs> monitored by the kgb but it was a pretty free kind of concert space and she eventually got to go to it and just like fell in love with all of these like eccentric musicians <laughs> with this crazy and, music right and by fall in love we do mean that very literally very literally because yeah like it doesn't take long for her to basically uh meet this other band that is up and coming at the time which really is like i i think one of one of my favorite bands like in general and you know mm -hmm. perhaps like my favorite like soviet rock band which is kino which uh the the two main members of it are uh the aforementioned victor soy and uh his guitarist yuri kasparian and joanna like falls 
well, she loves both these guys. Like she thinks they're like the coolest band like ever <laughs> and et cetera, et cetera. But uh, it doesn't take long for her to like literally fall in love <clears throat> with Yuri Kasparian, like the very uh, attractive and talented young guitarist for Kino. And uh, before long, they end up like in a relationship um, because I guess also like this first trip where she goes was literally for like a day or two. And then she goes back to L.A., but then she's like obsessed with basically these bands and like wants to go back. So um, do you do you think that the term groupie is appropriate? I think so. Definitely at this point, like she becomes like the only yeah. American groupie of these Leningrad rock bands. Um, but it's still I guess she the way she describes it was uh was she was like a crazed missionary running around the sandy beaches in Hollywood Hills telling anyone who'd listen about these incredible musicians who changed my life. Uh, and she wanted to return, but wasn't sure how, because it was still 1984. And you basically had to go on like an official government tour through like the in-tourist agency. But she finally realizes, well, it doesn't take her long, basically. I think even before she goes back the second time to uh, dig up some... Uh, pretty elite contacts, right? <laughs> uh, the, this is an interesting one. Um, she dug up the contact information for Luther Gribble, the banker from David Bowie's team who had met Boris Grabenshikov. I tried to look up Luther Gribble to see if he was in any like rock memoirs and like there's really no information on him like whatsoever. So I don't know who the fuck Luther Gribble is, who this banker uh, is that was like flying around to the Soviet Union meeting Boris Kurbenchikov on behalf of David Bowie. Yeah, like I will say this, like David Bowie, from what little I know, was very smart with his money. Uh, and for example, one of the more famous things that he did was he sold the rights to his music before streaming hit. So he basically cashed out and then the value just dropped really and interesting yeah they were known as bowie bonds and they became almost worthless or <laughs> much less valuable wow and he really came out ahead compared to a lot of other artists that's really interesting because that's a huge phenomenon right now where a lot of these uh particularly like boomer uh icons have been like selling off their entire you know music rights basically i think like stevie mm -hmm. nicks did it um a few other people i mean like taylor swift got involved in that whole kind of controversy but they, they've kind yeah. of been hyping it up in today's news like ooh, they got like 200 million dollars but i guess what you're saying is that it would have been worth way more than that like if they had cat if like stevie nicks had sold her music catalog in like the 90s yeah because i think he did that in like maybe like the 80s or like the early 90s and mm -hmm. then like with Napster and stuff, the value oh, drops. Okay. And then now it's like sort of coming back up. But yeah, exactly. Interesting. Interesting. So yeah. So he I was mean, pretty it, smart. He, apparently he was. And uh, and so Joanna Stingray went to Bowie's management office in New York and she shared them some of Boris's music. And David Bowie offered to pay for the Fender Stratocaster guitar that Boris had sort of like casually asked Joanna Stingray. Like next time you come back, bring me a Fender Stratocaster. <laughs> and so she asked David Bowie if he would like buy one for Boris. And uh, he did. And then he, <clears throat> he signed a poster for him. So she goes back to London, meet up with her sister, Judy, who really was like kind of her camera person for a lot of this. Like Joanna Stingray is like the number one documenter really of like this scene because... 
she was a rich girl from LA who had a camcorder in the mid eighties and would fly over there and would like shoot impromptu music videos. So there's all this like VHS footage that's on YouTube to this day that is basically like all directed by Joanna Stingray or her, or her sister. Um, and I mean, a lot of it is like legitimately like cool. That's kind of like a cool thing to have done, but it also is interesting that it's like, Oh, you're like the lone chronicler of the yeah. like it, gathering information on these artists and stuff. And like, and so, like mm-hmm. what, what, like the link you sent me, what is it? GQ Russia. So like she yeah. like, at, and this becomes much more apparent at towards the end of the book. She was like brokering deals. She was like, mm-hmm. set, like buying and selling rights to performing things in Russia. Like Eventually, she was like yeah. savvy. Oh she yeah, yeah. she savvy. was. Yeah, she doesn't sound, or she doesn't make herself sound very savvy. Um, kind of like in this '80s, like during the Soviet days, but um, also it's like it was so hard to actually like make money off of. Like she even eventually got a Melodia contract and released an album with them in like mm-hmm. 1990, but claims that like she never got any money and like that was like not abnormal basically to like have your record released and like, no, they don't pay you anything. So I don't know. But at the same time, like in terms of being like a guerrilla marketer and stuff and like an advocate, like going around organizing shit, she really was kind of savvy and she was able to build. I mean, we'll talk about it uh, shortly, but I just want to show you because I have it right here. I'm showing you. Yeah. Yeah. I'm jealous. Not to spoil it, (laughs) but you know, I mean, uh, anyway, so, I did notice it's interesting. This is very L.A., but uh, she mentions her sister Judy was always searching, enamored by psychics, astrologers, self-helpers, and meditation. She got her chart done by a horoscope reader who told her that all her planets were in water and earth, and it would serve her to be around people with planets in fire. She brought them my photo, and they told her I was one of those people with my planets in flames, a strong energy that would be a good influence on her. Okay, anyways. Yeah, I I wonder how much... I know, right? (laughs) I wonder how much (laughs) New Age stuff... Joanna kind of just casually got into or like self-help shit anyways so she goes back for the second time right and uh she brings in the guitar she has a whole thing with the guitar where like they're suspicious of it at customs and they write down the serial number and they were like when you leave guitar or you know leave you know or something like that (laughs) like so they basically said yeah you you have to bring back this guitar with you uh and you know prove that yeah when leave bring guitar or not leave the lead guard said <laughs> um, <laughs> and so she was like oh fuck i don't know how i'm gonna do it but uh but yeah so she went and you know uh, reconnected with boris gave him the guitar and said you know david bowie paid for it and he like freaks out and thinks it's amazing and uh etc cetera, etc cetera. she tells them like about the you know the customs thing and they're like don't worry about it so then i think actually i think this time is when she actually goes to the leningrad rock club uh because there was a festival going on so boris invites her and uh boris this is how he describes it it's what they call an official music venue that hosts hosts unofficial bands i could hear the mockery in boris's voice when he said official and unofficial quote it's owned by the state and the bands who don't sign state contracts play there we don't get paid because the ticket money goes to the hall and the equipment is shit he cracked a slow easy smile but we get to play live so uh he said the rock club is our home in a way it's officially called the theater of people's creativity and is part of the trade union system it's an amateur theater where regular people can perform and the kgb can keep their sharp eyes on everyone it's run by a guy named kolya mikhailov everyone loves him except the kgb he has to walk a fine line. Hmm. 
Okay, so interesting. And so they go there, and I think is this when she gets she does get grabbed. Yeah, by a couple people after this concert, time, right? Right. Yeah. At first, she thinks a guy is KGB who like looks at her and just asks her like, "Are you Joanna?" Out of the blue, and says, "Boris told me all about you," and she freaked out. But then it turns out that he was a musician, actually. Yeah, this is the first time actually that she sees the tall, romantic, Asian-looking singer with an angular face and a beautiful animated voice. His name was Victor Soy, and his band was Kino. <laughs> Yes, please. <laughs> his, his deep, luminescent Asian eyes. <laughs> yes, Victor Soy, uh, what, one fact check I think I have to throw out to her is I think she keeps saying different things about, like, she mentions that he had a Korean great-grandfather, and then elsewhere she says he has a Korean grandfather. But I always read that his father was just Korean. So, like, yeah, that's he's what half I Korean. Saw. Yeah, so I don't know where she gets, she keeps like extending it further and further. It's like he's like twelve percent Korean, but I believe <laughs> his his father I think was an engineer who was born in what is now the DPRK in Kimchaik. Actually, you know what? No, I'm wrong. All right, score one for Joanna Stingray. Victor's great grandfather Choi Young Nam was born in uh, what is now the DPRK in 1893. Uh So he actually was like not, uh, but he, he, he had a different look basically than most of the other stars that did kind of stand out. You know, he would often kind of like maybe pass for being like central Asian or Kazakh or something. She says that it, that his look was a rarity for Leningrad, but it's like, no, there it's not that rare. It's not that that's the thing is like, especially because he was like mixed like Russian and Korean, he looked like a lot of people from like the Central Asian SSRs. And in fact, in his movie, Igla, the needle that he starred in in like 1988, he basically plays like a Kazakh Soviet. Like it's kind of implied uh, because it's in uh, I think it's in Almata uh, where that was filmed. But uh, but anyway, I mean, you can find videos of him performing on YouTube and like there's no denying that Victor Soy is like a pretty charismatic performer and like a really engaging performer. Even if you have no idea like what he's singing about, he just has like a presence, like definitely up there with like somebody like, you know, Jim Morrison or, you know, any other person that's really known for like, but it also was kind of. I'd say it was kind of distinctly Russian and like distinctly Soviet. Like he wasn't just aping. And it's important, I think, to stress that like these people were not simply aping, like getting Western bands from the black market and then like imitating like Western yeah, bands. Because right? they did have those. There were a couple of bands that would just like play straight Chuck Berry. Yeah, like Center, uh, which was basically a Beatles cover band that then kind of like spun off to like be that they're in the Rock Around the Kremlin documentary. And they they sound very much like early 60s Beatles, um, but like they sing in Russian. So there were bands like that that like were going for that type of thing. But Kino is like 
much more eclectic and kind of interesting. Yeah. And their sound really morphs over the albums. Like kind of like Aquarium, Kino really is like just like how, you know, Nirvana like is Kurt Cobain. Like like Kino is Victor Soy. There there's no Kino without him, basically. Uh but like his first two albums are like acoustic. They're very underground, like recorded on cassette tape. And they have a really great like sound design and they're kind of like this bluesy Russian like like folk that yeah. almost has like a little bit of like a punk vibe, but very almost like Bob Dylan-esque. Ты 
they sort of formed a band, you know, for their next few albums, which is like, it sounds also like, I do wonder how much like indie rock and alternative rock and grunge and like all of the genres of like the 90s and the 2000s in the West. It's kind of uncanny sometimes how like some of Kino's songs, like some of them sound like Weezer. <laughs> yeah. Like like the the Blue Album, like Lubovets and the Shutka, which Joanna Stingray covered at one point. Um, sounds extremely like like Weezer's Blue Album. <laughs> other bands that just sound like what would become ascendant in america like but not until like 91 92 93 and it's and you know it's actually good that joanna stingray wrote this book because she goes into like great detail about going back to la and like trying really hard to like disseminate this music to all these tastemakers but then uh i don't know just curiously like it just never really uh, i guess People, did, people weren't into it. Or maybe they thought, oh shit, like maybe we can, there's some good ideas here. And like nobody's going to come after us if we like, I mean, you can't really copyright like sounds anyways, but mm-hmm. you know, nobody's really going to come after us. Like there's no Soviet government's going to sue us for copyright infringement, blah, blah, blah. But anyways, uh, so she gets, you know, hypnotized by Victor Soy, but like also by the mysterious guitarist, Yuri Kasparian. And I'm trying to see where she gets grabbed by the KGB. Yes, here we go. So after the, after this show, Boris says the KGB are backstage and they try to leave through like a side door, but then she gets separated and then suddenly like two phantoms, these guys in suits, rose out of the cigarette smoke and grab me on each arm, dragging me left away from the open doors uh, and blah, blah, blah. So then they take her down a stairwell and uh, they take her into like a room with just like two chairs and uh, a table in it. Very interrogation room. And they started like firing questions at her in Russian. And she just kept saying, I don't speak Russian. I don't speak Russian. And uh, tries to kind of just play like she's a ditzy blonde who has no idea what's going on. And so they kept saying like, what is name? And she said she knew if she gave them her name, there was a good chance she'd never be allowed back in the USSR. And she knew if she said Joanna Fields, like that would be it. And then, so she told them, tell me who you are and I will tell you my name. And they ask, who bring you as they light a cigarette? The other one asked, why here? And then, now this is, I think what you referenced. They ask, do you know Victor Soy, Mike Nemanko, Boris Grabenshikov? No, I said, I don't know those names. Who are you? 
I didn't know what to tell them. And eventually she said, I'm an American citizen. You can call the embassy if you want to know my name. So then I guess they looked at each other and then they just said, go. <laughs> and then they like let her go. But then she was followed by like a KGB agent and then had to go through this like funny, like, like some mysterious young woman like came up alongside her and said, you're being followed by the KGB. Walk around the city and lose them. Then come join us at the party. And then like vanished after telling her the address. Like, I don't know. It's very spooky. Uh, she eventually like loses the guy, loses the tail and goes to the party. And everyone's like, yay, having a fun time, etc." I guess it's like not that big a deal to them to get like harassed by the KGB and all that kind of stuff. So I guess, you know, that just emboldened her, I guess, a little bit. And she met all the Kino people, like she fell in love. I think at this party is when she kind of uh, vibes with Yuri Kasparian. And she basically, the way she puts it, she becomes like Schindler's List, but for underground Soviet rock music. <laughs> and their equipment, right? Yes. Yeah, like she goes around making lists of like, what do you want from LA? Like all she's like, it back into the USSR. I could have done so much more. <laughs> I mean, she's stopping a rock and roll holocaust. Yeah, so she just she like she becomes best buddies with all these people like hanging out uh, the the artist Africa um, mm-hmm. and then all the other guys in Kino and uh, yeah etc cetera, etc. Cetera. So then she goes back to L.A. and meets with like music executives and like tries to convince them you know to like give her equipment. She I think she talks to like the manager at the Hollywood guitar center and uh, a guy at Omaha, a guy at Yamaha and a guy at Fender, like high up executives to like 
get them to like donate equipment, which again is like, huh, interesting. Because I mean, she doesn't mention anywhere here the money of it, right? Like she wants them to basically like no, she give like right. That's that's what's so complicated. Like in her own like narrative, she doesn't want to say like. I'm I'm rich and I can just <laughs> pay for it. <laughs> yeah. And she also doesn't want to say that like a government agency funded it. Yeah. So like she sort of makes it sound like people just give it like and then she also doesn't want to say these companies were giving equipment because maybe they thought they could have a new market either. She she really like doesn't explain who's paying for any of it. No, she doesn't. I mean, she doesn't. She does find time to mention that she went back to work at the travel agency while yeah. trying to build connections to music equipment companies in the states to orchestrate the next instrument instrument shipment. I mean, that's yeah, that's a lot to do at this point. I mean, I guess it's not necessarily on the one hand, okay, buying a few bass guitars and like maybe some amps or keyboards or whatever, but also like I don't know, a lot of that analog like keyboard stuff back in the day was like expensive. Like, mm -hmm. you know, analog, like music equipment was like not exactly cheap. So, and, you know, maybe she was getting money from her parents to like buy some of this stuff, but it does beg the question of, especially when she's getting like, she's going straight to like these reps, these like executive reps at like Guitar Center, Yamaha, Fender, and like pitching them this whole idea. It does kind of uh, seem to, you wonder if there was like any kind of more official funding somehow being routed or if it was any part of a larger operation. So yeah. <laughs> I wonder and, if, I wonder if there'll be any documents later to suggest. Such oh, a thing. interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, she does say here after the first few meetings with these executives, I realized I barely had to say, please, everyone agreed. I was onto something special. They wanted to help to see more of this magical twisted world. And so I asked for more and more musical instruments within weeks. I had secured a synthesizer for Sergei Kuryokin, a strat for Yuri that shone like the winter sun and a four track mix. I even got a shiny gold Beatles record for Kolya, the Beatles guy from Capitol Records with his name on the plaque. From me to you, I told him when it, I handed over, this is the guy who only speaks in Beatles quotes. He says, hey, Jude, he said to me, his face red, <laughs> a red wash of rapture and amazement as he held up the shiny yellow disc. Here comes the sun. So, yeah, I mean, that sounds like she barely had to say, please. They're like, yes, let's give you like thousands of dollars worth of music equipment to give back to these people just because we feel like i mean you know i don't know i guess you know sometimes uh they do promotional shit like that but that that's something that like the reagan administration i think would have been like very interested in right yeah or like maybe some sort of faction of british intelligence perhaps uh -huh. which the beatles albums were always <laughs> available Yep, that's true. That, do you think Kim Philby like worked that out? Um, <laughs> God, I don't know. But uh, so he, she came back in November 1984 and uh, with all of this equipment and stuff. Uh, and that's when Boris took her to an official concert. I think that was that was the moment when the guitarist broke a string and everyone just sat there um, with an audience of 10,000 people uh, just like calmly watched him change his instrument which i guess is like you know oppressive and then uh, like, <laughs> you know it's there, so bad there are, like 
you go to like a Ingve Malmsteen concert, he's going to do that too. Probably. Like, yeah. It'll yeah, just like stop and then like restring it. Like, right. I mean, and sure, it's fun to watch a concert where people are like loose and like there's a lot of energy and like that. There's a place for that. But I don't think it's like, you know, I don't think this is like e- the height of evil or like, uh, you know, like the deadening of the artistic soul that these people are just like a little bit more chilled out as they play their music. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like, what's the big deal looking back on it. But so yeah. um, <laughs> there's, there's a scene where uh, she goes to Boris Grabenshikov's, uh room and she's just hanging out with him. It's her Judy and you know, Boris. And there's a quote where she says like, we loved spending time in his room, running our fingers over his spiritual trinkets, drawings he made, and albums of pictures. He would light up as he told us about them, and I would share in his enthusiasm and respond, wow, that's so cool. And it's just like, that is literally the meme. Like, wow, this is your room? That's so cool. Like, <laughs> like what is this? Like, it's so weird. I mean, I mean, he he's a very handsome dude, so like... I have met and then like he was already like beloved by like there are already like groupies in Russia that were like obsessed mm-hmm. with him. So the fact that she just gets to like spend all this one on one time in like his little his little icon room with him, <laughs> um, she seems to be pretty down. Though she never says she had like a relationship with Boris, uh, which is interesting. Like strictly, uh, I guess. Well, maybe I, not strictly platonic, but I saw some uh, Russian media articles where they were a little bit saucier than her memoir where she would be like coy and be like i don't remember if i slept with this star or not (laughs) so it was a little bit maybe less um a little bit more of the groupy stuff when you go to other sources good point good point because it does sound otherwise it matches up with like kind of groupy thing but also i mean at a certain point like it reminds me of somebody else who was a young gen x rocker girl that was kind of a groupie throughout the 80s and the early 90s and kind of wanted to have their own band and then kept ended up dating like a really famous uh member of like the most popular band in the early 90s you know whose dad like managed the grateful dead you know i'm getting some also came also came to a bad end and ended up weirdly in control of their intellectual property yeah (laughs) in a way i mean yeah, yeah, like some slight Courtney Love vibes because this is the same time period too when like people allege that like Courtney Love is like a teenager going to Manchester with like a suitcase full of ecstasy that she got from a CIA agent to like dose mm-hmm. like the, the music scene up there. You know, this is like the same time and like a really same type of person in a lot of ways. Though I don't get like scary vibes from like Joanna Stingray quite as much. Like, like she's much more yeah. playing i think the kind of ditzy la girl like who's just i don't think that she probably ever killed anyone directly probably whereas courtney yeah. love might have yes exactly <laughs> Allegedly. Uh, certainly her father has not like written a book about how she murdered her husband <laughs> so she has that going for her which is cool i did notice here there's another interesting comment she made around this time about uh how she was kind of amazed that like Boris would like, you know, rock out with all these fans and then like take the bus home, (laughs) like Mm -hmm. just like, whoa. And like, she was thinking about their missed opportunities and, you know, thinking about how aquarium and Kino should be recording, going on tour, appearing on TV. And she was trying to puzzle out the fascinating relationships Russians created between freedom, money, and the concept of time. Mm. 
She says, I could see these rockers value their freedom above all, chasing down that feeling for short periods in tiny apartment jam sessions while all others could do was tell me in their broken, accented English, I want to be free like you. Uh-oh, you hate to see it. <laughs> I remember telling them, uh, I guess to Joanna's credit, I remember telling them that Americans paid a price for freedom, waxing on about mortgages and college loans and investment for retirement. Freer access to capital and alleged opportunity forced Americans to plan ahead, to miss the moments in which they were living as they chased down the golden sunsets like the cowboys that they were. There was no borrowing money in the Soviet Union, so there was little reason to plan or save. Everything happened as it happened. Meals, drugs, laughs, fights, love. If I gave Boris $100, he would spend it that same day. If I gave him 10 bottles of vodka, he would throw a party then and there in the middle of a rainy afternoon. I mean, it kind of sounds like uh, that's what we're saying. Like there, there was some like upsides, I guess, to this kind of life. And like also like to, to whatever extent, like these young people uh, were dissatisfied living in the Soviet Union. Um, she does mention that like again and again in interviews that like it was usually like the normal Soviet citizens that would be like, we want freedom and great capitalism and rich like America. But like these people, these musicians uh, were much more kind of uninterested in that shit and kind of liked living in the moment, not having to be tied down with things like sort of like having like a full time job or having to pay rent or like a mortgage or anything like that. And there was a certain type of freedom that they had that Americans didn't have. And that, you know, she like tried to like convey that to people whenever they'd start like just spouting like bullshit they heard from Voice of America. Obviously, <laughs> ultimately, that that uh, that darker mentality like won or it, it won enough support to like overthrow the entire system ultimately. But uh, but it is it it is interesting to think about that. Yeah, it's very strange because she is like I don't get the impression that there's that much deceit in her memoir. I think that she is largely telling the truth. Mm-hmm. I think there are certain things she leaves out, but I don't get the impression that she's lying very much to the point where she posts like she writes several of her own personal Ls at different times, which is always fun. Mm-hmm. And then she also like whether or not she even acknowledges it, she writes all of these pretty cool things about the Soviet system. And yeah. so, like, I do get the impression that, like, she was there. She was, like, observing real things. So, yeah. Yeah, because it doesn't fit in with if she did have an agenda, these little kind of stray anecdotes about how, like, hey, you know, actually, like, like I feel like if she was more of an a conscious psyop, she would be, like... I don't know, like uh, emphasizing how much they didn't like the Soviet Union, but she seems to like, but maybe that's also a protective kind of posture Mm -hmm. to so that they, especially because she has way more fans in Russia today than she, like people in the United States mostly don't know who she is, but people do know her in Russia. She's like a bigger deal. And there's been controversy in recent years. I think I mentioned to you, there was like a few years ago, a member of the the state Duma in Russia, who was a member of like Putin's party, like alleged on the Duma floor that Viktor Soy was basically like used as a CIA asset, and that like the the lyrics to a lot of his like most famous songs were written in like a Hollywood recording studio in L.A. and probably like transmitted via Joanna Stingray to like uh, whether wittingly or unwittingly on Viktor's part uh, to basically psyop the Soviet youth into like abandoning socialism. 
And so like, that's an idea that is out there that like is worth mentioning um, that some, yeah. but he also got a lot of clapback for doing that. There were a lot of people that were offended that he would uh, insinuate that Victor Soy was some kind of CIA op because they view him as like a quintessential like Russian and also like uh, somebody who was like a, a true Soviet like man of that era, like his values and his whole attitude um, and even his lyrics, like, they felt are like deeply organically like of his culture and the idea that some like American CIA guy like wrote it is like a fan. You know what I mean? Yeah, no. And I have definitely taken the <laughs> Fyodorov pill. Like mm-hmm. I am. Uh, Do you want to describe very... the Fyodorov pill? Yes. So basically let me get the exact quote here. Yeah. Like you said, uh, basically in his words, a whole CIA department in Hollywood, California, were professionally writing songs for Victor Soy mm-hmm. after studying the situation in the USSR and then picking the correct words that would play on the listener's sentiment. So he said this in the Duma, the Russian parliament, mm-hmm. and he was basically like, that's the funny thing about like <laughs> the Russian parliament, because there's so many guys who either were in the KGB or the military or knew like knew the people who were. Yeah. And this guy, Fyodorov in particular, he fought in like, I want to say the Soviet Afghan war. Okay. And like, he's like a electrical engineer. He's like a really smart guy. This isn't like, (laughs) like your zany uncle or something like Mm -hmm. he is like a player, like you said, in United Russia, I believe. Yes. The uh, Putin's party. And here's the thing. He is part of, oh shoot, what's it called? Let's see here. Yeah, he's part of, or he sort of runs the National Liberation Movement, which has this idea. Now, let let me lay it out for you. The idea is that after 1991, the real power of the Russian Federation is in the hands of the United States. And that Russia is effectively, the Russian Federation mm-hmm. is effectively an occupied country with Whoa. basically a colony. And through his, in his mindset, basically the Russian Federation doesn't have control of their own currency. The central bank does. They don't have control over their own industries. A lot of their media is not controlled. I know, really crazy huh. out there views. Well, right? I mean, <laughs> it's... A spicy perspective but i think there is something to that i mean our in terms of them being a, a sort of a colony of um international capitalism um that definitely became true <laughs> in the 1990s under yeltsin and i don't think it's like it, it was clawed back to some extent by putin but i think it's like i'm the you know, skeptical yeah. i'm skeptical because that, at the end of the day he's like a unless he's been playing like a kgb long game like the entire time since like you know the late 80s like he's a liberal democrat like see that's guy. the thing fyodorov basically believes that putin is pulling sovereignty back to russia and that is sort of the open question to me whether that's true or not <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah yeah exactly it's uh it's very complex but but the basic premise i don't know if the cia literally wrote victor soy's songs 
but I am not going to believe that they were not involved with <laughs> Joanna Stingray. It, there's definitely, I mean, because when you think she is going back to LA, she's bringing back uh, tapes of this music. She's bringing back pictures, videotapes, all kinds of stuff, all kinds of art. You know, she's bringing back all these things. And then she's somebody who does have access to like very influential people to sort of do something with it. And I think, I think we've both talked about um, like the interlocks and like the entertainment industry with mm-hmm. the government, with like the intelligence apparatus and things like that. And I think it would be frankly like naive to not assume that somewhere in the food chain here, like some, well, I mean, we basically know that the federal government did figure out that she was running around there because the FBI came to visit her <laughs> eventually. Mm-hmm. Right. So this is around, I forget if it's around the time uh, before. No, no, no. Cause she had a, printing of it so she showed oh, it right. to her remember and then she was like can i take that and she's like no yes that's right oh my god yeah yeah so she she does have a run-in uh with the fbi i did notice at one point uh when she was hanging out with a couple of uh i think she was hanging out with uh costia and slava from um alisa Mm-hmm. which is like became a very big band um, and had an affair with a uh, Costia, but got them on TV, got them on her video camera to all yell. I want my MTV because she was <laughs> doing a TV. She wanted, she, I don't know if she already had a deal with MTV or reached out to them, but she wanted to do like a little video segment from the Soviet union with all these Russian rockers, like yelling, I want my TV. Uh, I want my MTV, which, you know, I mean, <laughs> it's like, okay. Um, obviously there was no MTV in the Soviet Union. Yeah. So eventually she got this idea. Like she, I guess she went to a lot of record labels in LA and tried to basically like get them, uh, she wanted to to pitch them on basically like releasing like an aquarium album or a Kino album. And she said that the first couple of industry titans I met in the States, like those at Warner Brothers and Capitol, were receptive to the tapes I'd already brought back with me and played for them. It was so clear they saw potential in the project and could see the remnant pieces of, again, capital W, Wonderland, that the tapes represented. But as soon as the discussion turned to specifics, I could feel everything get sticky. Who owns the rights to this music? I was I was asked nearly every time. She said the bands do. Which is not exactly a huge, like, question to ask. Like, that seems pretty normal. It is pretty normal. Yeah, exactly. I guess, you know, she said they're technically unofficial underground musicians who record on two tracks in their bedrooms. They're completely independent. And uh, the Titans would muse, like, I don't know. Are we sure the Soviet government doesn't have a stake in this? The last thing we need is for them to start suing us for copyright infringement. Uh, so apparently the Kremlin's publishing arm, VAAP, had already cut deals to distribute Russian classical music with several of these firms so that the American companies didn't want to jeopardize that tentative relationship with any type of clandestine rock and roll. Uh, like, again, like could be true, but also I wonder when you're talking about these industry titans, uh, I can think of a lot of reasons why they maybe wouldn't want to release and I don't think that like pissing off the Soviet government is like the top concern. I mean, or did they stand to make so much money from like Russian classical music? <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like this is a decade when it was like all about like rock music and pop music. And there she's bringing them this product that is like undeniably kind of interesting and probably would like marketed the right way would sell more than, you know, Shostakovich or something. 
but well, that's the other thing uh-huh. too it's like it's not like rock and roll from other countries sells that well anyway it's like yeah. it is technically a pretty big leap to like sell music in a different language anywhere i think it's yeah. maybe additionally harder in the u.s when there's sort of like even less bilinguality yeah absolutely and the kind of aforementioned like western chauvinism about rock mm-hmm. like being that like why would you listen to rock music that isn't in like that that's a common i think almost like a commonly held like uninvestigated belief uh, among many americans is like if it's not american mm-hmm. or british or like canadian or australian like why the fuck whatever it's probably shitty like or at least in english because like a lot yeah. of bands now just record in english true yeah i guess you could be a swedish band or you know something like that yeah um yeah no it's true but yeah if it's not in english like not interested nope lame and et cetera, et cetera uh which is really kind of a, a shame but mm-hmm. yeah so i guess she didn't get a big kind of reception with that but then she decided that hey you know what what if I could get you guys a record deal in the West and get your music basically published out there, right? And she got a few bands kind of interested in this and including Aquarium and Kino uh, and then eventually Strange Games and Alisa as well. Which like uh, three of the four are massive. The fourth is like, you know. Strange Games, they're a good band. They're interesting, but they kind of broke up like uh and split into like different bands and like weren't a little they really kind of stayed more underground yeah and so yeah she starts to put together this album that she decides to call red wave and i i do have like i literally have a vinyl copy of it right here you can still find copies of this on ebay i think it sold like twenty thousand copies but yeah it's uh joanna stingray presents red wave four underground bands from the ussr and It's got a picture on the back of all of the band members with Joanna Stingray in the center, uh, standing in front of of a cathedral in in Leningrad. And it it is noted at the bottom here, the musicians do not bear any responsibility for publishing these tapes. Stingray Productions is grateful to all those people who had the courage to preserve and deliver the tapes. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about (laughs) the making of this album and what she had to do to get these tapes of these four bands like out of the Soviet Union back to L.A. and then mix them all into, you know, this compilation record. Because, I mean, you know, she kind of presents it like this kind of fun, sassy, like, sort of innocent caper that she has to pull off to like outsmart like the KGB and but then you know there's like a couple uh kind of references scattered throughout about like for example that some of the tapes were um smuggled out through consulate officials I think she even says does she say that it was an American consulate official that smuggled Uh, out some of the tapes wasn't it also the Swedish she was yes it was the Swedish as well Yes. And then I think she like hid the rest in like her luggage. Um, Which can I just say, no, they would never have done that unless there was some sort of official sanction. Like you you're not so? going to have the Swedish government smuggle. Oh, for sure. For yeah. sure. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So yeah, the fact that the people at the U S consulate who, by the way, they would like go to parties at the consulates, not, 
uh, infrequently. She mentions that multiple times. Oftentimes it was the Swedish consulate, but she does mention them like going, like one time she mentions to like Yuri and Victor, like and Boris, like, come on, like we're going for cheeseburgers at the American consulate tomorrow or something <laughs> like that. But she doesn't talk about going there. It's just like a, a little casual mention. So she must have been, because you know, like, among people working at the embassy, some of them are CIA who are pretending to be State Department employees, right? Uh, they're mm -hmm. usually like the political affairs officer or something like that. So I think if you're having a party with up and coming Leningrad, like artists and musicians and stuff some like that. Some of whom are dissidents. Some of whom are dissidents. I think the odds that the whoever the people at the CIA station there are are potentially going to be circulating in that crowd. I would put those odds being uh, pretty high, especially under the uh, Reagan, Bill Casey uh, era of the CIA, right? <laughs> like, how could they not, right? And the yeah. idea that Joanna Stingray had zero clue is doubtful. She might not have known, like, who they were necessarily, but, like, there's no way that she didn't know, you know? Yeah, exactly. And she you know, eventually did come into contact with like actual people kind of in the government. She also mentions she ended up doing a Voice of America interview to play some of the Russian songs she had smuggled out. And then she called up the bands in Russia and had to give them maybe eight different radio frequencies I got from VOA because apparently when Russia blocks one of them, they can switch to another. A couple of people heard it, which is great because they haven't even heard their songs on the radio before. <laughs> It's like, okay, see, that's the thing where she's like, oh, yeah, you know, I just went to, like, the Voice of America, like, totally just wanted to, like, interview me. Cool. You know? So it's like, okay, that's and literally. And then they tell me which frequencies they're going to switch to. Like, okay. Right? Uh, and I'm I'm sorry, who was running Voice of America in the mid to late 1980s? Do you remember? Because I do. Not, no, who? Uh, it, that was Dick Carlson, Tucker, <laughs> Tucker Carlson's father. <laughs> was running Voice of America in the late 80s. So, you know, is that the type of person that is like doesn't have a dog in this fight, basically? I don't necessarily think so. Um, so, okay, so she starts putting together this, uh, yeah, this uh, this album together. And yeah, her I mean, relationship with Yuri Kasparian like deepens during this time. I have uh, a couple anecdotes if you want to find. Uh, sure, sure. Okay. <clears throat> so, for example, she describes daily life in Russia, and a lot of this I just love. So I'll read a portion of it. She said, speaking of Russian women, I was in awe of Russian women. They all had jobs, took care of children and husbands, and made food for everyone in the house, in their home. I had never even learned how to bake a potato. Despite all these demands, <laughs> Russian women were, weren't run down by their hard work but took pride in their strength and their bodies. Overweight women would wear sexy outfits and dance at parties as if gravity had no effect on them. And it's just like, yeah, this sounds like a healthy society. I, I, I wrote that, that entire quote, series of quotes, because it was like completely like unironically based, I guess, yeah. like in a really like positive way. I mean, she even says, oh yeah, the one really funny anecdote there was, uh, she adored that Russians were so comfortable with who they were. Few had pretenses and they never exaggerated to make themselves or anyone else feel better. Your daughter is beautiful, I told a couple once. My mother had trained <laughs> me to always be complimentary to others. Part of that Southern California charm that lined the tan, thin skin of competition and superiority. 
No, she's really not, they responded. <laughs> but she is a very clever, very smart and funny girl. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's kind of a, that's like amazing. Like They just want to be accurate about. <laughs> yeah, no, she's really not. Um, but she, but she has many positive attributes. Thank you. You know, yeah, uh, and that's also, yeah, she also mentioned that, um, you know, women would, uh, I guess, like uh, Soviet Union sounds pretty body pause. Overweight women would wear sexy outfits and dance at parties as if gravity had no effect on them. Leaning against a wall and watching them in an oversized shirt and baggy jeans, I would often think, do I as an American feel as free as these women? They might not have much money, but they had fewer societal inhibitions and were less constrained by convoluted ideas about what other people thought of them. Tetolsti. Some people would sometimes say to Judy and me when we returned back to Russia, you're thicker. It absolutely devastated me, but these women didn't see it as an insult. It was a fact of life, not a mark of self-worth. The men in Russia seemed more affectionate between one another. Fathers and their teenage sons comfortable holding hands and close male friends kissing goodbye on the lips. These men were so confident in their masculinity that they didn't feel inhibited in the way I would see American males interact. You know, it makes you think everyone always makes fun of like Brezhnev kissing like Honaker, but like, yeah. you know what? Maybe they're just really good friends. Maybe you need to like check your, you know, toxic masculinity a little Sometimes bit. Sometimes uh, you can just kiss your fellas. It's fine. It's it's all good. Um, and she does mention the babushkas marshalling their neighborhoods uh, who were like the best and how one day they were lying on the, the, the lawn outside an apartment in their guitar center t-shirts and this babushka yelled at them. So you think you have the right to be on the lawn? Quickly now, get off the grass, all of you. And Boris got up and and uh, you know tried to talk to her. And Africa, the artist, uh, yelled out in Eng with like an English accent, like "We do not speak your language" or whatever. <laughs> and then she said, "It's not nice. I'm sure that in your country you wouldn't do it. Imagine what'll happen if you all lie on the grass. There will be no grass if you lie on it like that. You know, which <laughs> is kind of a metaphor, I think, for this like whole story in the fall of the Soviet Union." There will be no grass if all you punks just keep lying on it like that. But, you know, you just had to roll around on the grass in your Guitar Center t-shirt, didn't you? Because, you know, <laughs> nothing mattered, blah, blah, blah. Anyways, um, so th those are really some, like, beautiful kind of, like, snapshots that really don't sound, uh, yeah. you know, it, it really belies, like, the scary image we all have of, like, ooh, like, the, the soul-deadening existence of, like, the Soviet people. And all that she, shit. She also talks about how good the food was. Like, yeah. how it was jarring because she said that she grew up on, like, Snickers, uh -huh. you know, hamburgers and Brownies. all that shit. And, yeah. And she would eat these simple but very, like, healthy dishes, like carrots, potatoes, borscht, yep. brown bread. Brown bread. She and, loved the bread. Yeah. And, like, she described how Russians were, like, very homeopathic. Yeah. So, like, if you started to feel sick, you would just go eat a clove of garlic. Yeah, Boris would do and that. It, yeah, and she would be like, that's so gross. And they'd be like, what? It works. <laughs> wow, like medicine outside capitalism. It's kind of, and there's the, some positive things to it. And, you know, like, organic food. They were on, they, mm -hmm. in a funny way, they were like, and I mean, talk about like, you know, women feel empowered. They're in the workforce. They also have like free child care and they feel uninhibited no matter what their body size. And like, it doesn't define them. Like, wow, doesn't this sound kind of like a liberal, like utopia in certain way? I'm not, I don't mean that as an insult, but I mean like in yeah. the way liberals think about like, we must center a society, the vision of a society where everyone feels seen and include. It's like, well, they were kind of like doing a lot of the things that, you keep saying like you want to do, but like actually are doing it, but it was through like tanky communism. So obviously yeah, they were doing evil. stuff that like 
Beverly Hills, California would eventually come around to. <laughs> yeah. Again, like like out in front of all the trends, musically, culturally, dietarily, it invalidates the idea that this was some kind of like backwards culture that didn't keep up with modernity or something like that. In a way, I mean, mm -hmm. it is very like capital M, like modern, like sort of late Soviet society. And it like if you just look at like film reels of it and stuff or you look at this, these videotapes that she recorded it looks like like everyone looks kind of like a cool hipster like in brooklyn but like yeah. actually like the real ver like like it looks like hipsters in brooklyn over the last 20 years have just been like aping the style like dressing up in cosplay as like cool undergrad leningrad rockers in the 80s you know but the, these guys are not doing it necessarily in this kind of like competitive flex kind of attitude uh you know it's and, not I tied mean, to consumerism really that's like very literal because like what became the popular type of tattoo for that group of people but like russian stick and poke like mm, interesting tattoos. oh is that, is that where stick and poke kind of came from like um, russian maybe. prison tattoos yeah interesting like, and not that that many people had those at that time in russia but still Yes. Yeah. But yeah, criminals did. But they were in their work uh, penitentiaries at this, their labor penitentiaries at this time. They were not uh, mm -hmm. running like the aluminum industry. <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> okay. So like Joanna Stingray manages, she gets like a small record label basically uh, in Hollywood to like agree to like make this record. And so she smuggles out all this stuff, uh, including to some people uh, that work at embassies i think she oh, i wish i had the quote here of when she thanks the people who like she can't the secret people she can't name because they work at consulates yeah here we go yeah sergey and boris both had friends in several international consulates in leningrad the u.s french and swedish who were fans of the underground rock music oh, i bet they were Boris and Sergei would get invited to go see new films or listen to American records, but their diplomatic connections also gave them access to direct international phone services and international <laughs> delivery service through diplomatic pouches that navigated oh. around the clawing hands of any customs officers. A couple of people in the consulates agreed to send tapes out in their diplomatic mail addressed to my mom in Los Angeles. Um, in Los Angeles. Wow. Okay, so yeah, it was... Those tapes were smuggled out in diplomatic pouches and delivered <laughs> to her mom's address in Beverly Hills. So, like, okay. I mean, you're talking about, like, smuggling in these tapes with, like, classified, like, cables and documents and shit. I find it unlikely that somebody wasn't taking notice of this. But I guess, you know, they were. So I want to look up the part here where she finally gets a visit from... Betsy Cordova. Betsy Cordova from the <laughs> FBI. So I guess uh, she was, she had just put it out and blah, blah, blah. She's very excited. She got big time records. Fred Bestel, you know, agreed to like, you know, uh, put this record out. It was just at this time when she was back in LA where in the beginning of 1986, when she walked into her mother's house and saw her talking in the living room with a woman she had never met. Oh, Joanna, this is Agent Betsy Cordova from the FBI. She came over to ask me about your father's film, The Truth About Communism. <laughs> okay. She froze, glaring at the slender, bookish brunette and feeling the euphoria that she'd been riding slowly start to deflate. And she was wondering why would this woman call my mother about my father's film when they'd been divorced for 14 years? Was all this uh, some elaborate setup to talk to me? 
what if any Russians knew this woman was in my mother's house? It would justify their belief that I was an agent and I'd never get back in. That's what. So the FBI woman stood up and reached out her hand and said, your mother has been telling me all about your trips to Russia. I'd love to ask you some questions. I had little choice but to sit down. And she says, can you tell me about these trips? Where do you go? And she says she was in her 40s, so like way too old to have any appreciation for the boldness of the rock scene. Well, uh, she said, I, I go to Leningrad and Moscow every three or four months on group tourist trips. She asks, whom do you meet? Did you meet with any government officials? Why do you go so often? And she was scribbling down notes as she talked on her legal pad. Joanna told her, my friends are underground Russian rock musicians. I'm just trying to bring their music out of the Soviet Union and publish an album here in the States. She cocked her head at me. Why on earth would you do that? Uh, Joanna said, I want Americans to see how cool and talented these Russian rockers are. People here need to understand that rock music is in this country is the same as rock music anywhere. Music has no borders. I'm trying to bring about a better understanding between people. I see. She was completely disinterested. And I guess Joanna wanted to say in italics, listen to me, listen to their music. It will change the way you look at the world through your nasty, narrow eyes. And uh, the FBI agent continued, have you been to any Soviet consulates here in the U.S. or met with any Soviet immigrants? No, just musicians. Well, that's not it's not true, but I guess I won't hold it against her for lying to the FBI. And she said, and you say you've had no contacts with anyone in the government, just musicians. She leaned forward and said, I don't think you quite understand the risks involved, regardless of your reason for going. It is possible for the Soviets to blackmail you by planting drugs on your person and then arresting you for possession of narcotics. Forced cooperation with the Soviets is still cooperation in our books. And then she <laughs> left and said, if you don't mind, I'll probably have some additional questions later. And then she screamed at her, Mom, why on earth would you let this woman come over and interrogate me? <laughs> so, yeah, and the mob said, I don't know. She called and sounded so nice and asked if I could talk about your father's film. It's been so long. I thought, why not? So, yeah, I guess her mom is just letting FBI agents into the house to, like, uh, interrogate her. And they're riding her ass a little bit. But she still manages to, like, get the the tapes out and at the same time sorry yeah go ahead no a lot of this portion with the fbi like if i had to pick parts where i felt like she was being strategically like leaving things out i think Mm. this would be one of the main portions I, i definitely think so um yeah especially with her like subsequent meetings uh with her and yeah, and in spring of a few months later, she met her again. But then, you know, Joanna Stingray, I think, filed a FOIA request like in recent years and got her FBI profile basically. Because what she, does it say? Oh my God. <laughs> Here, let me <laughs> let me bridge it up. By the way, at the same time, Boris told her that the KGB had been going around asking questions about her. And they actually, I think, around the time red wave came out they stopped approving her visa for a little while which like totally made her like lose her shit and was like and well she she acts like she was thrown in the gulag she basically got thrown in the i mean i think she like wrote a song at the time that she translated paramien and but like translated it as petty men so it's clearly just like her yelling at like the the you know the, the foreign ministry bureaucrats and like the KGB, like you petty men, like you're about to go down because you like didn't let me back in, like fuck you. But it's very like childish, basically. Uh, it's yeah. 
I guess the Soviets kind of mysteriously blocked her visa like after it could have been because of the album Red Wave and it could have been because she was hitting up the this FBI agent was hitting her up and maybe they found out about it. So I think she went to the Hamburger Hamlet with Betsy Cordova. And okay, so here we go. She shows her the Red Wave album at this point and Agent Cordova asks, can I have this? And she says, it'll be out in Tower Records in a few weeks. You can buy one then. And, you know, took it away. <laughs> and the FBI was basically, again, like, like sudden, subtly accusing her of being a Soviet spy. And she was just really pissed about it. But so 20 years later, she got her FBI record. And in it, they highlighted their reluctance uh, to meet with American agents and her numerous trips to Russia, citing both as possible evidence of her allegiance to the Soviet Union. Quote, it is theoretically possible that Fields is currently already cooperating with Soviet officials. Fields does not have access to classified or secret documents, but her parents and stepfather are politically affluent and active. Fields' mother advised that Ted Kennedy had called the residence a week prior to ongoing interview. <laughs> so yeah, politically affluent. <laughs> politically affluent. That's a new one, but it's uh it's pretty amazing. Okay, here. I, I see the scan of the file that she put in the book here and they list, you know, like her dates of travel and uh, pertinent intelligence, uh, blah, blah, blah. The following leads are being set forth and uh, the issue of blackmail in regards to forced cooperation with the Soviets was addressed and the issue of possession of narcotics in the Soviet Union. Okay, so just threatening that you're going to get drugs planted on you. Uh, the oldest communist trick in the book, obviously. Let's see. I'm trying to find the other uh, FBI file, though, which is very interesting. Yeah, uh, let, let me, me yeah. see if I saved it. Yeah, okay. I have it right here. This was a declassified secret. And a number of things are redacted from it, including like the office and the entire last paragraph and a bunch of other things. So it says uh, the header is L.A. redacted <laughs> in substance redacted for information regarding subject described as being from Los Angeles, who recently produced a record called Red Wave featuring several Soviet underground rock groups. Redacted was aware of subject, but didn't write about it due to unfamiliarity with the music. Redacted stated Joan Stingray had just been in his office, but didn't want to get involved because of the record cover naming the music, quote, underground. Redacted explained this has nothing to do with illegal, but rather only deals with the subculture. Redacted suggested she be sent to the cultural attache at the Sovemb, the Soviet uh, embassy. Attached enclosure will provide receiving offices with intelligence relative to Joanna Stingray Fields, an aspiring rock star who recently produced an album of underground music from the Soviet Union. Subject is currently attempting to market this album. And here, here's the really interesting line. Subject <laughs> would be considered part of the redacted program and redacted, redacted, redacted. Next paragraph. Above captioned subject has traveled to the USSR eight times in the past three years. And then an entire paragraph after that is just redacted and that's it. <laughs> subject would be considered part of the redacted program and blank, 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 blank. Okay. It also sounds like blank stated that Joan Stingray had just been in his office, but didn't want to get involved because the record covered naming the music underground Blank explained this has nothing to do with illegal, but rather only deals with the subculture. Now, that sounds like, and I think she says this in the book, that sounds like they had a Soviet source, like a Russian source, right? Like an agent they were running. 
who maybe worked in one of like at Maladia or something like that? Or does that sound to you more like or they like have a, a record executive who's an asset? <laughs> That's right? how I took it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, like a I record think executive. because they said they didn't want to get involved. I mean, I guess that that would track with her saying that all of them gave the excuse that they had deals like, you know, to, to republish like Russian classical music and didn't want to get involved because the record cover called it underground. Yeah. Um, like how, like how subversive could it be if it comes from like Capitol records or something? Yeah. I don't. <laughs> right. It, it would have to come from a smaller record label to have any like credibility. I guess it would. And, but they, they knew enough, maybe because Joanna Stingray told them that they explained this has nothing to do with illegal, but only deals with the subculture. So that, like, that part almost sounds to be like something a Russian source, like, might, might say because they know that. Whereas, like, an American executive, unless yeah. they were repeating what Joanna Stingray told them, might. Unless it's like the LA office of the FBI. That's which, true. Again, well. we don't know enough about this document to know if this is from you know like is it is this in la or like moscow right yeah it's unclear like what it i mean it, the heading says la but i don't know if that's like addressed to them or it's from yes. an office yeah. there and uh so it's but then you know she is considered part of blank program what that's, does she say about that i'm trying to look uh and see it, let me i can see. read it okay yeah go for it yeah, so she says, it remains unclear what program is being referred to here and whether the U.S. government ultimately wanted to recruit me. <laughs> <laughs> well, or a uh, third option, like perhaps there was a program that like I was uh, a part of from their perspective that like I wasn't necessarily like read in on like i was doing i was allowed to do something and i was mm -hmm. being monitored just the way the kgb would monitor the leningrad rock club uh maybe the cia was monitoring it would almost be kind of uh embarrassing if they weren't <laughs> you know what i mean at yeah. this point like she's running like, around with all these famous american people like she goes to andy warhol at one point right and convinces plays some of the music and shows like the art that she managed to smuggle out she told the border guards that it was children's finger paintings <laughs> but it's like very like basquiat style art and showed it to andy warhol and convinced him to sign to autograph a bunch of campbell's soup cans and bring them back and like give them as gifts to like boris grimenshikov and victor soy and all these other like artists and musicians and kind of had Bowie like involved and all these like corporations uh, and shit like that. So yeah, the question is not whether the CIA was involved, which she does not acknowledge the quote or the FBI. The question is how much and what were they actually doing? Yeah. What were they really up to? Because uh, it, it eventually, I mean, and it, it's hard. This is also like, I mean, what this is, uh, this is early 86, so, like, Gorbachev has just come into power, mm -hmm. and we're, like, just on the cusp of, like, Glasnost and Perestroika and Reagan's, uh, you know, peace summit, you know, and, like, Reykjavik. If this were like crisis in the Kremlin, it would be approaching getting difficult. 
Yes, exactly. Like you're going to start to like your the price of oil by the yeah, the price of oil is just plummeted and your monthly like income has just like been cut by 50 percent because Saudi Arabia colluded with the U.S. to do that. So uh, and there's like, you know, there's a there's protests in uh, Poland and, you know, on the periphery, the uh, the people, you know, the, the SSR republics are, you know, you might need to send in the army a little bit to pacify them. <laughs> um, you might need to uh, rejuvenate the cult of cybernetics uh, and maybe Lysankoism. But no, it, it's starting <laughs> to get real. It's starting to get the, the Afghan war is not going great. Reagan is doing all his bullshit in Central America and Gorby's coming in. And finally, the reformers have their go at the plate. Это так смешно Я снова один, как истинный новый романтик Возможно, я сентиментален Таков мой каприз